Recorded live. Well, Jim, we finally say a fond farewell to the 2017 draft and begin the far too early, far too extensive, far too drawn out, and probably at this point wrong-headed examination of the 2018 NFL draft. But despite all that, we're going to do it nonetheless because this is the lives we've chosen. How are you doing, Jim? Pretty good. Excellent. So I guess sort of final impressions of 2018. Uh, The things that people have started talking about, and I guess we're talking about even before, uh, there was a fair amount of time spent on, you know, the quarterbacks, because there's always a fair amount of time spent on the quarterbacks, uh, good, bad, and indifferent. And there was a sense that this year was different from a lot of years because there was never a consensus amongst the smart money, if you want to call it that, on the quarterback. Like, here's the guy. This guy's clearly the guy. There were people who said, well, how could how could Deshaun Watson not be the guy? He's the one who's played the best on the biggest stages, and look what he's done. He's not white. <laughs> well, there's that. And he's not six foot five. And he threw a good number, a more than good number of interceptions, and he's had one of the lowest, you know, gun numbers in terms of of ball velocity at the combine in 15 plus odd years of testing. And there are lots of sort of scary things. Well, only 10 years worth of testing, and there's a lot of missing data with that. But yeah, um, sure. Every quarterback in this class from a data perspective, not from a film perspective, just from a data perspective, had a, a flaw yeah. to where they would have to be somewhat of an outlier, with Deshaun Watson's only flaw being with data that has, like, 10 quarterbacks that are successful that we don't even know what their gun data is. So it's right. it's kind of like the Wonderlick in the 80s and that I can get everybody's Wonderlick in the 80s based on the ones that were successful – but all the guys who weren't successful, I don't have their Wonderlick. Like they, right. it's just not publicly known, and that's a lot like the gun data. Is you're you're treading into weird water, you know, with with gun data is all I'm trying to say. Right, because the um, sample size we have is so damn small, and mm-hmm. and once again, now this you can take this for what it what it's worth, but I, I'm not trying to be Mr. Sources here, but I do have a quote unquote source uh, that heard from one of the other quarterbacks that was at the Combine, that Deshaun Watson didn't quite, apparently didn't completely understand the point of what they were doing in terms of that and didn't understand just to throw as hard as you can. Now, I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is what I heard, which is two very, very different things. Two very, very different things. I I get that. I mean, there's always going to be conspiracies with it. (laughs) I'm just saying... The person that. who said this would have no reason. I mean, they'd gain nothing. So I don't. Right. It's like a thing I think someone would make up. They sure. wouldn't gain anything. This is someone who works with one of the other quarterbacks who's competing against Deshaun Watson. So I can't imagine why it right. would help them. So to, you're, you're saying it was a whole uh, age of retirement, not letting Johnny Manziel wake up kind of situation? Is that what you're. Here's what I'm like saying. A, <laughs> yeah. Here's what I'm saying. I don't know if this is true. 
as I just said before, I'm getting, you know, something from someone who got something from someone else. So it's third hand, but it comes to me, I guess, information. But this person would have literally zero motive. In fact, they'd have a motive to work in the other direction. You know what I mean? Like they, they would, you would, I mean, well, the draft's over now, but at the time they told me this, the draft hadn't happened yet. This was shortly after the, after the combine. And they basically swore me to like semi-secrecy at the time. And then later I revisited them, you know, closer to the draft. And they said, well, you know, after the draft, you know, just don't mention my name or the name of your source, but you can, yeah, you can tell them what I told you. But, there's no, there's no reason for one of the other quarterbacks to tell someone that he worked with that Deshaun Watson said after this to him, once again, whether or not it's true, I don't know, but that he didn't understand that was what the point of what they should to try to throw as hard as possible. That supposedly he didn't understand that. Now, why he wouldn't know that if this is true, why he wouldn't know that I, that shocks me because he's being work. He has a war chest or whatever. I mean, his, it wasn't like he was, you know, uh, uh, you know, a scrappy little bootstrapper trying to get prepared for the combine by chasing right. chickens in a Philadelphia back alley. I mean, he was, he clearly had every, literally every advantage a quarterback could have in preparing. So I, I'm not sure I buy it. So don't, right. don't think that's what I'm saying. I, I have a hard time swallowing this. I'm saying this is something that was told to someone who I can't imagine sure. have any reason to lie. That's all I'm saying. Supposedly it was told. I, I, I get that. And whether you buy the excuse or not, um, you know, it would explain why quarterbacks usually don't look very good during the combine drills because instead of trying to go for accuracy, they're going for just slinging it, you know. Um, but either way, I all I'm saying is when it comes to the radar data, it's just a unreliable measure. Right. And in my back, because again, you're talking about a guy that has data that goes all the way back to the 1958 NFL draft class. Right. Like that's really far, and people still don't understand the gravity of that. But but eventually they will, maybe. But eventually it goes that maybe. far back. Right. Hey, it goes that far back. People forget Einstein. You know, first started explaining his work to people in 1905, and. Yeah. You know, didn't didn't get a lot of traction for about almost thirty years, Jim, in the wow. in the scientific wow. community. So, that's, that's be a uh, but so that's but, warning but you. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> no, I get, I understand, but I'm just saying that when when you have when you have data that goes as far back as that, and it tells you that Deshaun Watson is going to be good, on top of other data that goes back to the 2007 NFL draft class which is a pretty decent sample size on its own in terms of high school data, even though people give me, again, all the people that have criticized it going, oh, I was great in high school, I usually say, okay, what were your stats in high school? Because I can tell you if you were good in high school or not. Right. You know? I, I think this is the thing that's at least recently gotten you the most vituperation and hate. Um, it's probably been the high school data stuff. Like just when people had sort of calmed down on hating you about – the other stuff. The attack on market share, yeah. Right, right. I mean, that was starting to gain some traction. I saw other people starting to throw it out there. It's like, oh, all right, huh? <laughs> and and uh, you know, that's like when I and that's when I knew hip hop was starting to to had, you know I'm old enough to remember when hip hop was literally born was starting to gain traction like Sprite commercials where you know like oh okay you know so when market share data was starting to you know get like its Sprite commercial moments I was like oh. But now, yes, you've you, you've brought the 
the pitchforks and the village, angry villagers back around. Got to come up here. with something new. <laughs> got to come up with something new for people to hate me for, I guess. But, well, you've yeah, done it. I mean, <laughs> but at the same time, the data is just so clear, and it just makes logical sense. Like, if you're going to have a guy who's going to be a great quarterback, doesn't it, or at least a prodigy quarterback, like a Peyton Manning level guy or whatever, then they would probably be pretty dang good in high school. Like they wouldn't be just this terrible quarterback at the high school level. Well, you know, you know, people like to whip out, they like to whip out Ben Roethlisberger, but he wasn't bad. He just took him a long time to start. Right. But, but that's the thing is I don't have, I mean, I'm still working on the data set. Like I don't have Philip Rivers high school data yet. I don't have Ben Roethlisberger data I just have to the 2007 NFL draft class, which is still pretty, still a big sample. I mean, we're talking 6,000 plus high school players. So it's it's a very large sample. And based on that sample, it just makes it very clear, not only with NFL outcomes, but with college outcomes. Like the majority of high efficiency quarterbacks at college level are typically high performers in high school. You know, that's kind of why some of these teams, which I don't know very many co- – why Alabama sucks. I'm just gonna be honest at getting quarterbacks because a lot of them have been below average. You know, Blake Barnett was like 23 out of 100 in high school. And, Yikes. Um, yeah, and Jalen Hurts, they just kind of lucked into Jalen Hurts because he was, you know, above average. You know, which is not what they've usually gone after or got. So, um, but yeah, I mean, now what was McCarron like? If you don't me asking, in McCarron high was really good. He was 90 plus. Okay. Well, there we go. But of course, he was a was a three star recruit or two whatever, yeah, a whatever he, star recruit. He was two and a half. I mean, there were I think rivals. Think, don't quote me, but I think rivals had him right. as a three, but I think scout had him as a two. Twenty was twenty four seven around then. I'm trying to remember if they were even. even that's the other thing is that it's hard to even remember. I mean some of these things haven't even run all that long, but. If I think they, I think it was basically split almost down the middle on you know whether it was a three or a two. But the point is that we don't have a lot of examples of guys who were terrible in high school who turned on to be great. Now, now I'm not saying it's never happened. And once again, I'm not doing the data work, so I'm sure right. there are some guys that you know. It probably happened. Right. It probably happened at some point, but. It what was Aaron Rodgers like in high school? Because, you know, everybody talks oh. about how no one really had any interest in him. Oh, well, I, I actually am working on that. Oh. I know how Drew Brees did. Oh, well, Drew Brees lit it up. I mean, our, he was a legend. <laughs> no, that would that would even I know. Exactly. He was like, killing the game. I know how game. Drew Brees did. I know how Aaron Rodgers did, at least when it comes to uh, JUCO, you know, junior college level. But I don't quite – know like i'm still having to piece together stuff like i literally have to go to high schools and talk to you know it's like a whole thing so because it's like high school's worse like at least with college data i just have to make a couple trips to some universities and you know libraries and stuff like that archives but with high school data it's a totally different thing you know it's like maybe i go to a high school and find out that they don't keep records of this stuff so um which would suck but that's that's just what it is but but for the most part, yeah, I mean, but that, but that's the thing is you say, you say that like, well, you know, well, maybe, you know, people didn't like Aaron Rodgers in high school, but because he was bad, but he actually was good. But yeah, situations like Andrew Luck, who was a four-star guy, 
but his high school production score is 99.70 out of 100 at high school. So if you were looking at that data, you would go, why is Andrew Luck considered a four-star recruit? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and then you just kind of realize that the whole high school recruiting thing is all out of whack anyway. Yeah, 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 stuff. yeah. But it just is what it is. Like Teddy Bridgewater, you know, was 97.93 in high school. And he was like, what, a four-star, three-star? He, he was a four-star, yeah. Well, once yeah. again, so most places him as a four. I think he might have been a three, maybe one place. But most right. places consider him a four. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but what I'm trying to say is that for the most part, this whole four-star, five-star thing is just a bunch of meh, you know. <laughs> um, when you actually break it down and you look at what the, you know, what the results were, it's just kind of a bunch of meh. So, but yeah, I mean, yeah, high school production data is with it. But that's the basic point is that the gun data, like, again, the, the main issue with this quarterback class was just that while there is was talent in this class, you just had a bunch of guys that had a lot of red flags, whether it was like Deshaun Kaiser's red flags was basically high school production and college production. Uh, Mahomes' red flags was just high school production. Um, you know, Brad Kaya was the, kind of the same issue. High school production was kind of a big issue. So, like, we had lots of productive quarterbacks. We just had things that didn't connect. Like, we didn't have hands down, clear, cut, that's the guy, other than Deshaun Watson, and then he had the gun data stuff come out. Because other than that, everything was saying draft Deshaun Watson, other than the gun data. Like, there was right. nothing that was really saying, oh, no, don't draft Deshaun Watson, he's going to be terrible. Like, there's really nothing <laughs> saying that on, on paper until the gun data came out. So, um, but that's basically what this class was, was kind of that. So, which people don't pay attention to the data, but at the very least, that was sort of the general feeling. Maybe that's why the NFL was saying that the class was poor, I guess. I don't know. They, they drafted three of them, though, in the first round, so they didn't think it was that bad. Of a <laughs> class. Exactly right. That's the other thing I was going to point out. Well, there's always this sort of weird thing. Well, we have to draft a whole bunch of – this tackle class is terrible. We better draft a bunch of tackles early. You know, it's like, wait, huh? There's always that interesting push-pull Whenever someone says, well, this class is terrible at X, well, that means you've got to draft X early, a bunch of them, right away, because there won't be any later. So there's always this interesting. Yeah, what happened? Because <laughs> I, I was surprised that the offensive tackle class, even though they said it was terrible, which it wasn't really terrible, it just didn't have, well, okay, it was terrible to them because it didn't have, like, SEC talent. Right. Stuff, they weren't about but... super sexy five guys that had been – I mean, whether they were five stars in high school, I guess it doesn't matter that much, but they weren't – it wasn't the guys they'd been told to like that ended up being good, basically. Exactly. And because of that, they just kind of turned their nose up to it, um, whereas other times they get into classes where they go, it's weak, and then they just draft a bunch of – they try to draft as many of them as possible in the first round because they realize they're not going to get them in the second round, third round. So, but, yeah, I mean – I don't know. I mean, the 2017 class, I mean, all I can really say is great defensive class. And, I mean, I think it's going to be a good class overall. You know, I think it's not going to be like 2013 or anything. I hope not. But at least on paper, it doesn't look like the 2013 class. So, I think it's going to be a little bit better than that in terms of like total total talent. But 
yeah, I think it was a pretty decent overall class. Even with quarterbacks, I think there's a couple that might, at least the quarterbacks fell into the right situations. You know, I think most of them, with the exception of Trubisky, fell into pretty good situations as far as quarterbacks go. Yeah, I, as I've said before, and I guess I will say once more, there's things to like if you are of a mind to like the class. Um, there are things to dislike uh, if you're looking for reasons to dislike the class. I think that there's a couple of players, as always, right, that that despite the hype and despite the whatever else surrounding them will end up coming up well short of people's expectations, and especially some of the, you know, some of the, as you point out, some of the guys who maybe, you know, their production was misunderstood or, or people overlooked certain holes, gaps, flaws, whatever, in terms of either production and or sometimes, uh, you know, the physical metrics. And then, once again, by the same token, there are players that, for whatever reason, people didn't seem to take terribly seriously or, or gravitate towards who had the production and tested well and all the other things you look for, but whether it be the school they attended or whether it be, you know, whatever it is that keeps people from perceiving certain players as being as good as they are, you know, we're going to show up and show out once they get to the NFL. But the thing that stuck with me sort of in an overarching manner, one was the quote-unquote narratives. We have those every year, right? So you had the Joe Mixon narrative, not just what Joe Mixon was or was not, but the narrative that he was one of the, five to ten most talented players in the entire draft. And while I can understand how that thought process begins, there are things that I look for in a top five to top ten kind of player that I never quite found in Joe Mixon. And once again, I hate to keep coming back to this, but to me, top five, top ten guys eventually become starters. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm having a tar- hard time thinking of a guy that ended up being a top five, top ten kind of player, unless you want to sort of count some of the tight ends who came to basketball, came to, came to that came from basketball and came to football late. Jimmy Graham being obviously the most obvious example. You were never long time, full time starters or didn't produce very much, whatever. But those guys are exceptions, not the rule. But I'm trying to think what great running back you know, was sort of a committee guy and wasn't even the main guy in the committee. I mean, Ronnie Brown had a solid career, but he wasn't a superstar. Um, well, you have to go back to, like, the 70s and the 60s to find examples of that guy, um, or 80s even, you know, to, like, sort of triple option attacks and stuff like that. But it's... I don't know. As I as I told most people with Mixon is that sure he's athletic. I mean that was the best, that was the biggest thing with Mixon was just that when he went, when it came to testing time he at least was one of the most one of the more athletic uh, running backs in the class. But people get burned on athleticism so much. Like Christy Michael. Christy Michael was a 90 plus percentile athlete in every single metric. Yep. But his production was like 26 out of 100. So shouldn't surprise anybody that if you just looked at his production data, that it doesn't matter what his athleticism data is because he was only 26 out of 100 in terms of his production data. Um, and I'm not saying that's the same thing, same case with Mixon, because Mixon at least 
you know, got kind of hot, I guess, you know, and, and at least hit the sort of three-time Pro Bowl level at least, it was, you know, around 52 or higher. But you're just talking about average production at the running back position. Like, normally guys like that either skate on age, which he is young. I mean, that that's the only reason why I think there's some hope with Mixon is that he's, he's a very young guy. Um, but I was just very perplexed. I mean, it's all about highlights. It's all about gifts. You know, with mixing, you know, yeah, like making right. one-handed catches and, you know, doing stuff like that. Like, that's, oh, my gosh, look how amazing it is and stuff like that. But he never quite had, like, a, you know, dominant performance because he would do some cool things and then P. Ryan would come in, you know. And I understand a lot of people going, well, P. Ryan is a good back on his own. And I'm like, yeah, but, again, if you have Adrian Peterson, if Adrian Peterson and P. Ryan were on the same team, I don't think you would – give p ryan that many you know like you would you just wouldn't do like p ryan's cool he's the backup but adrian peterson's on the team you know um same difference you had marshawn lynch or any other type top you know top back so right marshall falk right i mean you can't tell me if Damian tomlinson was on that team that somehow they wouldn't find a way for him to get more of the carries (laughs) You know, so the thing you have to assume is that if you want to put forth the theory that somehow this guy was a much better, like now the guy's, you know, narrative is starting, that this guy was somehow, and of course he'll get his chance to show that he can be the guy, but put forth this, this narrative that he's the better back and he was the guy who, you know, yes, I know Perrine went for this, you know, amazing record against Kansas, but if Mixon had been out there, he would have gotten a thousand yards, you know, whatever. That's easy to say because obviously there's no way of proving it, but what is it people think that the Oklahoma coaches had against Joe Mixon is what I'm trying to understand. Like if this guy is so much better, what is it that kept him from winning the job? And yes, I know people bring up the Tyler Palco, you know, Joe Flacco thing would see sometimes, but the fact is that at the time, I saw both play. Palco was better. They weren't wrong. He outplayed him. It's just true. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Flacco family or whoever else might be upset. But at the time, the better player was Tyler Palco. He had a better grasp of the offense. He was more accurate. I don't know. He's just better. I mean, he he was doing a better job at the time. Now, the whole ceiling floor thing, you know, obviously we like to talk ceiling and floor. Tyler Palka was never going to be a high ceiling anything. I mean, that's, that's not in the cards for you when you're Tyler Palco. I get that. And I'm, just, I'm not disputing that. Like that. I agree. If that's the argument you're making, that one guy has more things, you know, the whole tool argument that people love. Yes, clearly Palco has, doesn't have the same number or size or volume or density or whatever measure it is that's used for tools, that fight's going to be lost by a guy like Tyler Puck all day long. I'm always going to agree with that. But at the time, you know, before, who knows, maybe Flacco at State, he might have eventually won the job. Who knows? But at the time, you know, 19-year-old, and maybe even twenty year old. But I know, you know, nineteen. I saw a nineteen year old Joe Flacco being outplayed by 
21 or so year old Tyler Palco. Who knows what it would have been like that next season if 20 year old uh, Flacco had matched up the next year against 22 year old Palco. But you know, like I said, we'll never know. Exactly. And let's, you know, let, let's just to be real here. It's not like Joe Flacco's a top five quarterback or anything, you know. Right. He's a he's an NFL starting quarterback, which Tyler Paco is not, I think is what people would point out. Uh, though he was for a little while. I think that's what people would point out. Oh, hello? So we've talked about the, the guys with star quality, the guys who have a chance to be stars based on the work you do. And we've talked about the guys who we should be most ex- concerned about, guys who may have been drafted fairly early but have, you know, scare you a bit um, because of the things that work against them. And we've talked a little bit about sleepers and even what sleeper means. I mean, we... Sleeper means different things to different people. You know, I've heard people call guys that I, I certainly wouldn't consider sleepers sleepers. Like, wait, hold on. That guy's all conference in a, in a big five conference. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, we have different de- definitions of sleepers. Some people think anybody who doesn't go in the first round, I guess, is a sleeper or whatever. And we've touched on that. Here's what I would like to know based on the type of of numbers and analytics and work that you do. We've talked about the teams even that had the, you know, the, the draft that maybe might be most most in line with the kind of things you do. Here's what I'd like to know. Based on the kind of work you do, is there a team that, ha- or teams, being plural, that had drafts that most align or show that they're maybe using if not exactly what you do the way you do it, or at least drawing upon the same same types of sources, same types of techniques to find players. Like whose draft looks the most like a, if they brought you in, I mean, still would look different, but closest to if they'd brought you in as a consultant to work, which drafts look the most like that and which drafts look the least like the kind of draft you might have helped them to have. Right. Um, yeah, that's tough. I would say probably Carolina, um, because, you know, they got Christian McCaffrey, who, well, first of all, they got a lot of my favorite players, to be honest, Bill, because Christian McCaffrey is one of my favorite running backs. Curtis Samuels, at one point, and I still kind of feel this way, at least a top wide receiver, uh, just because of his potential, I guess, uh, you know, change of direction, stuff like that. Uh, but those are two guys that have, you know, very good in terms of elite flexibility, elite speed. And then they get Taylor Mouton, who I was a fan of, and I felt like they got a steal because he was someone that I actually had pegged as sort of a first-rounder guy, and they ended up getting him day two. Uh, and then, of course, Deshaun Hall is sort of Taco Charlton for less money. And then 
You know, Corn Elder is also another one of my favorite players as well. So, like, yeah. the Panthers honestly had a, a draft that would be most likely the draft that I actually would have done, I guess is what I'm trying to say, other than the sort of Alex, you know, Arma and Harrison Butker stuff. Um, <laughs> that would that would be the type of draft I'd have. Because for the most part, what I've noticed is a lot of teams that at least say they're analytic-focused are teams that do analytics for, say, the first three rounds, and then after that, it's anybody's game. You know, <laughs> it's like it's like Cleveland, right? They get their first three rounds, not three rounds, but the first three picks, they got three of the most explosive and fast players in the draft, and Miles Garrett, Jabril Peppers, and David Njoku. And then the rest of their draft was just all over the place, you know. You get a Caleb Brantley, who isn't exactly a great producer, let alone great athlete. You get Howard Wilson, who has like a slot corner uh, profile, but not exactly elite length or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? So they just kind of had a draft that was sort of like, for the first three rounds, they were analytics heavy, and then they just gave it to coaches and stuff, which makes sense. You know, it's a committee, teams are a committee process. But I wouldn't say there was any team that, their entire draft was just aces. Because I get criticisms about this, too, whenever I grade draft classes. They're like, well, we got players that hit starter thresholds, so why are you so rude with our drafts? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm trying to be rude. I'm just saying you could have done better, you know? Like, every draft could could be better. Uh, it's I don't understand why this is such a controversial thing to say. Like, it's it's sort of like, you know, the Raiders – draft Amari Cooper, great. Oh, so the rest of our draft was great. Well, Mario Edwards hasn't exactly been a mate, you know, like, uh, or uh, Clive Wolford, we're already talking about replacing Clive Wolford already. So, like, yep. was that really a great class? Sure, we got Amari Cooper, and Amari Cooper's awesome, but the rest of our class was just kind of, eh, you know? So, again, it's, it's all in the eye of the beholder, I guess, but I guess what I'm just trying to say is that that's that's just kind of how I roll, man. You know, I, I think that all teams can do better. And, but I would say that the one, the one draft class that at least fit like what I do is Carolina. And it surprised me the most because Carolina throughout most of their talking points, especially with their coach was anti-analytics, you know, yeah. talking about, you yeah. know, it doesn't measure the heart or the grid or the, 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 the <laughs> you know, type of stuff. <laughs> You would like Analytics to know more about the dog, right, the dog, dirt. the size of the dog, and the right, yeah, the size of the. Analytics the size never had to put his hand dog. in the dirt and drive, and right. you know, and be tired, right. and and the coach tells you to give one more, you know. Analytics never had to do that, and then right. I usually say, well, don't you think a guy that produces in the ninety plus percentile has some drive or love of football? No, like. You don't you don't be like sure there might be just this sort of really really uber talented guy who just everything comes easy to him and he doesn't have to work hard and he's still amazing but that guy rarely comes out most of the time if you're really really productive it's because you 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 do have heart you you are working you are trying to get better so but you know I don't know but yeah I mean other than all that stuff Carolina actually had a pretty decent draft is all I'm trying to say. So at least from the 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 standpoint of the stuff that I do, 
it would it, it would it makes sense. Their entire draft just kind of looks like a geometrics draft. So I guess you could say it's geometrics improved. I guess you know in a way with their draft, but um, but yeah, that that's how I kind of describe Carolina's draft until the very mm-hmm. end. But again, you know, by that point you're probably popping champagne bottles or whatever, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, they put their foot off the gas pedal, I guess, at that point. Uh, so, moving, not quite on, but moving slightly down. Are there any other teams, they might not have gotten to the same extent, but at least were close or in the conversation for having touched upon, maybe not quite to the same percentage, but maybe had you know, four out of seven or something like that. Guys who were right. another team that maybe their grass pass was not quite as spot on, but closer than most in terms of how you approach what you do and, right. you know, what they did to maximize draft value. Well, Cincinnati comes to mind as well. I mean, just because you get, you know, pretty much the fastest wide receiver come out in a while, who's also good on tape. Uh, you get Joe Mixon, who is a little high even for that area, you know, but at the at the very least, he is very athletic and he's young. You're like, he has a lot of positive indicators that at least could help him out more so than other running backs in the past. Uh, Jordan Willis, I mean, you get Jordan Willis, you know, and for the life of me, I don't know. If he turns out to be a dud, then I guess tape watchers win. If he ends up being really, really good, then people will say, you know, analytics doesn't matter because Jordan Willis went day two. So NFL, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just a just a gambling. It's just gambling. That's all it is. Nobody knows what's really <laughs> going to happen, stuff like that. Um, because I'm just saying, because Jordan Willis hit every single thing uh, yeah. in terms of athleticism, in terms of production, in terms of age, in terms of size, in terms of length. Like, every single thing was boxes checked, except NFL teams were just kind of, meh. You know, he didn't play at Clemson, so, you know, it doesn't really do much for me, I guess, when it comes to him. But, yeah, so you get that guy, you get Carl Lawson, who at least has some positive things. Like, the thing about Cincinnati is, I don't necessarily agree with their approach to just avoid FCS players because it seems like a concerted effort to just not get small school players because they know that the success rate is so much like, like getting FBS guy, the success rate is like 10% on average. Getting FCS guys like 1% success rate. So if you're playing the odds or like this, now you just feels like a team that's already trying to play the odds by just getting guys to go to big time programs and stuff. So I'm trying to say. Um, but at the very least, guys like Carl Lawson has some potential. Josh Malone has some potential. And Mason Trek, which is thrown in at the end, it's sort of a, hey, we're like geometrics team kind of thing because I would have drafted Mason Trek too, probably seventh round. So that just feels like a like another team that was sort of like that, at least in terms of like data sort of stuff. Um they, they felt like pretty good. At least those first three picks would have been data approved for the most part in terms of Ross, Mixon, and Willis. Okay. And turning to the teams that seem to have, you know, maybe come up a little wide of the mark 
uh, based on what you do. What were the teams that seemed to maybe carry the least, care the least, or understand the least, or whatever it is, with regard to to that? Well, I mean, I, I don't mean I don't want to say Miami a hundred percent, but they were a team that came into the draft saying we're going to get younger and we're going to get more athletic and they didn't really get younger or more athletic you know like like they get Charles Harris who in many ways is a productive player but he has more things in common with Aaron Maven than he does like a high quality NFL pass rusher um you know, and it's not even really Cameron Wake. And they keep bringing up Cameron Wake a lot to me in terms of Miami fans going, well, based on your stuff, Cameron Wake would, you know, not be anybody. And I go, again, if, if an NFL player goes to Canada, takes a bunch of steroids, and then comes back right. into the NFL and becomes really successful, like, that's a very rare thing to happen, is all I'm trying to say. And I know they go, oh, steroids. I'm like, dude, the guy's like 35 years old and he's still – you know, Jack, like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> he's got to be thinking. Like, like basically the, the, the basic data stuff shows that guys like Cameron Wake shouldn't be productive because most of the time players who get into 32, 33, they have like a 40% drop in production. Cameron Wake just got more productive in his 30s. So there's some funny business there is all I'm trying to say. But <laughs> – Charles Harris is, is, is just one of those guys where, like, Aaron Maven, I don't want to make that comp, but, like, Aaron Maven was kind of the better version of Charles Harris in that he was younger, he was actually more productive than Charles Harris, but he just had the same flaws in terms of not being very fast and not being very flexible. And that was actually the big one, not, not being very flexible for his size. Um, so who knows what happened to Charles Harris. But, yeah, so they get that guy, and then, of course, they get – Tankersley, he's like really old uh, on top of not being the most athletic guy ever. Uh, Isaac Asiata is getting Mike Ayupati comps, but that's not really what he is either. Uh, didn't Ayupati have, have better lower body strength? And once again, I'm not looking at anything. I'm oh, just going faster. off my memory. of. Oh, that's what it was. Okay, faster. Ayupati was, um, was above average explosiveness above above average flexibility, but had elite speed. That was basically Ayupati's uh, profile. Uh, but it was a profile in which he might struggle a bit when it comes to flexibility, which he has struggled a bit when it comes to pass protection. So it, I'm not sure if, it has, if that has anything to do with it, but, it, you know, speed is something that's really good when it comes to power schemes, you know, um, which that's what Ayupati was really good at, you know, his power schemes. So, um, but Asiata doesn't really have one elite athletic trait when it comes to – because even offensive linemen, the best ones had at least one athletic trait that was above 80 percentile. And, like, we're talking everybody. Even Gabe Jackson had – he actually had two 90 percentile athletic traits, actually. He just didn't He just didn't really run very fast for his size, so people wrote him off. But even Gabe Jackson had some really cool athletic traits. But that is really Asiata's uh, – uh, bag, but yeah, so they get that guy, then they get Gavin Gottschalk, who is basically like the defensive tackle version of Charles Harris in terms of being productive but not fast and not flexible. And then they get Vincent Taylor, who I like but is really old, and then they finish it off with Isaiah Ford, who has a lot of things in common with like Bernard Barrian, 
in terms of athletic ability and production and stuff like that. I don't know, I don't know if he'll be Bernard Varian, but I do know he's going to a very competitive wide receiver core already. So, uh, But, yeah, Miami's draft was just kind of meh, you know. Um, I don't think there's any other teams. Of course, New England was also very blah. Like their total approach, but the worst draft, like the way I could say it, is the worst. The worst draft ever was the Giants draft. Oh, pretty much. Okay, people, I think will be surprised to hear that. Could, could you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Well, I say it's the worst class ever because you do start out the draft with Evan Ingram, who I think is a good player, but you end up getting one of the least athletic defensive tackles in the last 20 years in Dalvin Tomlinson, who also doesn't really have elite athleticism trait. You get Davis Webb, who didn't hit starter-level high school production. Um, and a lot of times when guys don't hit starter-level production and they have high-end production in the NFL or the college ranks specifically, uh, usually scheme helps them out a lot with that. So I'm, I'm not saying that Davis Webb played in a scheme that can kind of inflate things, but uh, it's very possible. Let's make sense with the data. Uh, they get Wayne Gallman, who is not athletic and didn't really hit high-quality production marks. They get Avery Moss, who's a good defensive end, but isn't, like, amazing in any one thing. And, of course, you get Adam Bizzawadi, who can become a starter based on his athleticism, but you're talking, like, bottom end threshold starter level stuff. Like a couple of guys put that athleticism that became long term starters and that's it. Um the sort of outliers that offensive line coaches point to and go, see athleticism doesn't matter because this guy was good. Yeah, that, that was it. Two guys out of, you know, forty guys. So um but yeah, so like overall it just wasn't that great of a draft for the Giants, because they start out well and then they just end poorly, which is what most Giants drafts are like, by the way, Bill. I don't know if you know this, but they usually <laughs> start, they Odell Beckham Jr., and then the rest of the draft is kind of, yeah, like, in the Odell Beckham Jr. draft, can you name any of, the, any of the other players they drafted in that draft, you know, that were significant, because I can't think of them, <laughs> you know, from the, from the 2014 draft for the Giants. Yeah, I'm trying to think of – there was a defensive player who played some um, – uh, what was his name, though? Uh, hold on. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, you're not even getting superstars. I mean, you know, don't make juniors. That's what you're asking. I, I, that's 100%. That, of that, I am very much aware. I'm uh, trying to think who was basically their second best uh, pick out of that. I keep thinking of they. they oh, they I think it was there. Weston Richburg's probably that guy. Weston Richburg was a starter pretty much right away. It seems yeah. so that's a good thing. Well, uh, this is their draft. They got Weston Richburg. They got Jay Broomley or Bromley, who I don't think is on the team anymore. They got no, no, he did. Andre Williams, who has yet to break out. Devin Kennard, and then Bennett Jackson. And that draft grade was a B minus, so. For an was it? Yeah. <laughs> well, Odell Beckham Jr., you probably would have given it an A, you know, because he's one of the best. Right, right, right. I mean, that alone but obviously gives you a little bump up. It helps. Yeah. <laughs> but, 
this seems like a very much similar to that type of draft because you get you have a defensive tackle who just isn't very productive. I get this a lot too. Like, well, just so you know, again, just so you know, James Dalvin Tomlinson is a run stuffer, and I'm like, so what if he's a run stuffer? Like, Ontario Poe was a, was considered a run stuffer. He was above average productive. You know, all the all the top two gap guys, the two gapper people that we talk about, the nose tackle, Vince Will, Fork, yeah, right. Where productive guys in college are extremely productive. Ed Washington. All of them. So don't Casey tell me that well, was... he's a two gapper. You know, even Casey <laughs> Hampton was productive. Right. I and, and the thing is that, right, and there are people who are higher on Rogers, right? There are people who are like, there's a whole thing, like, you know, yeah, yeah, he's a nice little player, but Sean Rogers, that's the guy you want. You know, but, uh, that was the first time I remember really looking at a little bit looking at production because and once again, I don't remember what Sean Rogers testing was, but the perception was that Rogers was the higher ceiling guy because he was more athletic, even though Hampton kept out playing him, which I thought right. was interesting, but, uh, right. Well, it's because I, I don't think people, yeah, I don't want to, act all elitist, you know, like I know more about the defensive tackle position than everyone else. But to me, great defensive tackles are players that that make plays everywhere, despite the fact of the limitations that they have. You know, sure, it's very limiting to be in a scheme where you have to two-gap and you have two offensive linemen you have to deal with. But the best ones are the ones that can disengage with those two guys easily and make plays regardless of that situation. So, that's what it's going to be like in the NFL. You're going to have two elite players, at least NFL players, that are going to be trying to deal with you, and you have to be able to, you know, deal with them and then get to the ball carrier. And the ones who do that more consistently are usually the ones that are really good. So especially when it comes to solo tackle market share production, which honestly to me speaks a lot to their ability to, to make plays beyond the LOS, you know, beyond the line of scrimmage, you know, um, when you see Malcolm Brown, you know, making a play on the sideline, that's kind of what I'm talking about. I just remember the, the, remember the, the pick I liked. You have to, uh, my guy and former all-unappreciated team member, Nat Barry. That was the guy that I liked uh, from there, from right. the latter part of that Giants draft. I was trying, I, I was, it was killing me. I'm sorry. But, yeah, yeah. I liked him. Um, and he's, he's still in the league. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if he's still on the he's team. He's still there. Not. I think he's still yeah, there. Okay. He was a starter. And then they drafted four safeties. But, you know, um, but again, it, it's just not something that you would – Like I just think the Giants draft was so bad just because you started out well and then you just kind of went to a tailspin at the end. You know, um, and there was a lot of drafts that were like that. Because, again, in my mind when I'm trying to grade drafts, I'm trying to think of, you know what? What this what the player, what the potential of this player is, and then how many of those guys they got? Because there certainly were drafts like the Jets, where the very beginning of the draft was at least okay, but then it just ended poorly. But that doesn't mean it was a terrible draft. That just means that they just kind of just gave up in day three, you know, or just it's didn't phoned, really phoned it care. In. <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean to say phone it in, but, like, when you get guys like Derek Jones, you get guys like Jeremy Clark, and these are guys that, to me, speaks as people that have a very superficial understanding of data. Like, they just go, oh, this guy's six foot two, and he has long arms. He might be the next Richard Sherman, you know, type attitude. 
when they're not nearly as productive as Richard Sherman. It's just they happen to be tall and have long arms, so boom, they're next Richard Sherman. But that isn't how Richard Sherman happened. No. Oh, there's a lot of revisionist history. And there's even people <laughs> quoting, you know, people saying Darrell Reeves, there were scouts back in that draft saying, well, they didn't know Darrell Reeves had the speed to cover guys in man back then. There's like what? quotes and snippets. I saw these these things. Like who, people would post who didn't this know to that? <laughs> they were saying scouts were, you know, because Drew Rivas wasn't exactly a top 10 pick, you know. So they were like, well, see, Drew Rivas fell late first, so that means nobody knows anything. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, like, for a much better example is it would be guys like Malcolm Butler or guys like uh, Josh right. Norman. That is a t- <laughs> yeah, That's a terrible example. <laughs> yeah, and Josh Norman would be a better example. But then, as I usually tell most Josh Norman people, call me when he has three all-pro considerations because he doesn't quite – like, he, he, his, 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 his yellow – his jacket for Kenton isn't exactly being made right now, is what I'm trying to say. There's a lot more things he needs to do to get to that level of, you know, stuff. So, um, I don't know. Cause we, we, I, I don't know if I've noticed, but ever since Richard Sherman, there's been this acceleration of – uh, you know, naming the next great cornerback, and it's like a flavor of the year type cornerback every year now. You know, of who who's the next great cornerback going to be? Who's the next shutdown cornerback going to be? Patrick Peterson got a year. Uh, the aforementioned Mr. Norman got a year. Marcus Peters even got a year, and there were some people in the Malcolm Butler camp even. Exactly, but. They have to sustain that, you know. Like they have to have at least a four-year. I mean, most cornerbacks, it's from the data I've done. At least cornerback-wise, you're talking about like a four-year span. You know, like Osimo was like four years of you know great cornerback play, and then kind of fell off where he couldn't even cover Brian Hartline. And then you know, Revis had that kind of Revis Island sort of era, and then he you know kind of went downward. You know, got traded, and you know, a bunch of other stuff. Um, we're like crowning guys after one year, you know, one year of a really good PFF grade and boom, you know, top cornerback ever, you know, but I don't know. A lot of, and a lot of these guys are athletically speaking limited to the point where are they really the top cornerback is, you know, like it's really hard to, it's really hard to tell you the top cornerbacks are anymore, Bill. I'm just saying, you know, cause you can point to sort of data going, oh, they were really productive, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the top cornerback. It just means that they were in a scheme and they were able to maximize what they can do in a scheme. Like a top cornerback to me is someone that can line up against top wide receivers and shut them down or at least do a good job, you know, of doing that. But I don't know. Well. Speaking of, since you mentioned corners, the corners that have the best chance to be special, multi-pro bowl, maybe multi-all-pro, where did those guys land in the draft? And what team maybe did the most since you now need, you know, essentially three starting corners? What team maybe took the best Yeah, towards having a really solid secondary in the 2017 draft, Jim. 
Well, you know, Green Bay probably did the best. I mean, because they, they get uh, Kevin King. Like, the, th- the thing about the cornerback class is none of the cornerbacks in this class um, had all-pro potential. Uh, there was, like, no – basically, there's, there was no Revises, there was no Richard Sherman, there was no Charles Woodson, there was no – you know, there, was, there wasn't that special top ten talent at cornerback. But you did have a lot of guys who at least had some potential to be pro bowlers. And the one guy that had the clearest potential to be a pro bowler was Kevin King. And because he had the arm length, he had the production, he had the age, he had the athleticism traits, uh, and he ended up falling to the, you know, the Packers, um, essentially, uh, which is good. And then on top of that, they got Josh Jones, who is one of the better strong safeties. Like, Obi Melifonwa and Josh Jones are actually very similar in terms of just athletic ability. Uh, you know, Obi is definitely the more athletic guy, but Josh Jones is kind of like that, but actually much uh, more productive, at least in terms of interception market share. He's a, a better overall ball hawk than Obi is and finishing plays on the ball too. Um, so I felt like the, the Packers did a pretty good job of getting uh, two DBs that I think are going to really help their secondary out the most out of the class in, in terms of getting the best guys uh, at those particular one of the – at least they got the best cornerback data-wise, and they also got the second-best strong safety data-wise. Okay. Now, you just mentioned Naomi Asimov. How do Kevin King and Naomi Asimov sort of stack up in terms of production profile and athletically? Well, production profile, Nnamdi had higher solo tackle market share production. Um, Kevin King has higher pass reflection market share production, though. Huh. And as an athlete, Nandi is more explosive and more fast, while Kevin King is more flexible than Nandi. Like, a, a good comparison for Nandi, like a modern comparison, would be like Cameron Ramsey. Like, that was kind of what Nandi uh, Asamoah's uh, athleticism profile was. Or Keith Tlaib, too. Uh, kind of explosive speed uh, athletes. Kevin King isn't an explosive speed athlete. He's a he is above average in terms of explosion and speed. He just isn't elite when it comes to explosion and speed. What he's elite at is when it comes to flexibility for his size. Right. Um, so he's essentially like Stefan Gilmore, but if Stefan Gilmore was actually, because the thing about Stefan Gilmore is he had average pass flexion market share. Kevin King has 96.65 pass flexion market share. So on top of having longer arms and stuff on Gilmore too. So it's essentially like a better version of Stephon Gilmore. And that probably helps him with the passive action market player share is he's able to get to so many things. You know, if he stays close to a guy and the ball's on its way with his wings, he should be able to get his hands on a lot of balls if his timing's good. So, if that's the team that did the most, you know, sort of help in that area. Who 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 also did fairly well? Maybe not quite to the level of Packers, but who came based on the work you do? Who came closest after that to helping fixing their secondary? Based on the work you do. Secondary. Hmm. Interesting. Um. Probably the Jets. You know, because I mean, they get Jamal Adams. Jamal Adams has more things in common with like Reggie Nelson than an elite safety, but 
he at least is a starting safety. He's better than Calvin Pryor, you know. I mean, that's Oof. that's kind of what that yeah. is. Um, yeah. And then yeah. they get and then they get Marcus May, who surprisingly has a lot of things in common with Cam Chancellor from a production and an athleticism standpoint. Although I wouldn't necessarily make the leap to say Cam Chancellor. So that's the only thing I I would say is he, I don't think he's Cam Chancellor, but he does have a lot of similarities to Cam Chancellor. When it comes to uh, production and uh, athleticism. Um, well, that was just hearing, even though it might not be quite the same, it still would make fans happy, the Jets fans happy to hear that they're, if he ended up being 85% of Cam Chancellor, I still think that would thrill Jets fans who have watched some pretty below average safety play. Yeah. In a defense that demands a high level of safety play and is coached by a guy who played safety at a high level in the NFL. So, yeah, this would see, this this would seem to be an ideal situation to, for them to fix that. This would be good. Yeah, it would it would be a good situation for that. Um, and then the other team would probably be Seattle, you know, which is funny to say, fix their secondary situation. But they've made a lot of they drafted a lot of safeties, you know. Um, they call Michael Tyson a cornerback. I wouldn't necessarily. He's you know he's. He, I mean, he was sort of an edge safety, but I guess you could say the nickel cornerback. But, yeah, I mean, they they get guys like Shaq Griffin who fits the sort of size profile stuff, uh, who was also athletic. They get Delano Hill, who I wasn't the biggest fan of, but he does have some positive uh, athleticism. Like, really, he's very fast. That's about it. Right. Uh, Cedric Thompson is really productive, but was just not athletic at all. Um, and then, of course, Michael Tyson was productive as a cornerback slash slot corner type situation. Um, but I think all those guys, at least, I don't know what they're doing. Let's see. I never really know what Seattle's doing, but, um, I really don't because they used to be spark, 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 and then now they're drafting all these guys that are not, not, not spark, you know. So, oh, yeah, Ted certainly breaks the mold there. Yeah. So, I mean, they still draft guys at spark, but now they're, like, drafting – they're basically, like, drafting the most athletic guy and then the least athletic guy then the most athletic guy and then the least athletic guy. And I just don't understand what that approach is. I get. I don't know if they're trying to hedge their bets or they're they don't know what they're doing, so they're just trying to figure it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing, but um, it's it's weird uh, to say the least. Um, but yeah, it I mean, you, but it makes you wonder if there's some picks where the position coach had a lot of more a lot more impact maybe in some of those than some other picks. I wonder. I mean, I don't know this. I don't right. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just feels oh, like that. Yeah, and then the other team, yeah, the other team in terms of secondary, I think, is Dallas, too. Yeah, I think they get Shadobi Awuzi, and they get Xavier Woods. Xavier Woods was one of the safeties that had Pro Bowl potential. I mean, he basically was like Buda Baker athlete, but had significantly higher. Like, his interception market share for Woods was 99.69 out of 100. Um, so, like, Really high interception market share, really high pass selection market share, a very decent overall free safety athlete, and they got Xavier Woods at a pretty good spot. So 
Like, that's the saving grace for Dallas is I think they drafted a lot of decent DBs. And of course, Jordan Lewis is more of a slot DB, but he also has pretty good production marks. It's just he doesn't really have amazing athleticism. But that, I mean, if you saw film, you would agree, I guess, with that kind of sentiment. But overall, I just think it's a pretty decent secondary class. And then I know a lot of people are going to, what about Oakland? You know, Oakland drafted a cornerback, and he was the one of the top PFF cornerbacks. And, you know, and Gary and Conley has more things in common with Sean Smith than any other corner. Like, it was freakish. It's freakishly eerie that compare like, Conley and, and Sean Smith have similar solo tackle market share production. They have similar pass selection market share production. They had similar age when they came out. And the only real difference is that Sean Smith was taller and had more length and was, you know, a little bit less athletic than Conley. But, like, you know, Conley just came yeah. off as pretty much a Sean Smith clone who just happens to be smaller, like a baby Sean Smith, you know. Right. I, I noticed that late in the process, there was some Gary and Conley CB1 buzz even, which I, I could never quite get with. I could never quite get with. But, but I had why? a few minor Twitter battles with people over that uh, where, you know, I, like I said, I, I, never, I didn't dislike the kid, but, I mean, CB1, you know. <laughs> well, he didn't hit any of the marks of an elite corner. And I know – there's lots of people that go, well, you know, like I get lots of questions about what does your cornerback data take into account success against routes or, you know, like what PFF does a lot. And I just go, no, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because, you know, PFF doesn't really like the one thing PFF hasn't done is actually take all their data and go every cornerback that, that became a really successful player hit these PFF grades. Like they haven't done that yet. You know, no. Most of the time, they just do player comparisons. Most of the time, they just do player, oh, this guy, you know, uh, had this level of six, like this PFF grade, and this is all the other PFF grade. Like, that's really all they're doing is doing player comparisons, you know, which I guess simplifies things, I guess, you know. But then I, I also think it's kind of misleading because, right. like, you're just kind of, oh, yeah, he's going to be just like J.J. Watt. Well, no, he's not. Well, Aren't most simplified things misleading by their very nature? I, I would think so, but yeah, even though I, I, I kind of get that too. I don't know. Um, somewhat, I mean, that's, but yeah, that's I mean, the issue with Spark, right? I mean, the reason it's attractive to people because it's simple, but it's misleading because it's so simple. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I got, I got into another debate with this. The data guy with a sparker. Uh, no, he wasn't a sparker. He was just saying oh. the the uh, it, he he basically said it's tempting to turn a complex thing into a simple thing. And I said it is tempting, but that's you know basically I didn't say the road to hell, but it's kind <laughs> of like that. You know, right. <laughs> like the variables are the variables for a reason. You don't want to mix the variables together without actually seeing if there's a positive correlation either. Like there's, there's stuff where like you could take a number and take another number, put it together and you actually get less successful outcomes because of doing that. But people don't take the time to, to look at the, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, 
Darren Connolly to me is just a guy that based on his production data and based on his athleticism data, he, he's essentially just Sean Smith 2.0. Um, and maybe that's a good thing because Sean Smith was a guy that early in his career was getting buzz about being, you know, one of the next best corners or yeah. whatever, even though Vontae Davis is a better corner. One of the best young. Um, yeah, exactly. But he got buzzed. But, but he got buzzed. And then he got a paycheck. And then he left. And now he's on Oakland. So. Yes, correct. Because we, we're trying to be Seattle now because of the LinkedIn. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what we're trying to but just, do. Just wait, just wait, you guys get Deshaun Shed when he becomes a free agent. Right, and, and of course, then we got Obi Malafon, who who is basically Eric Reed, but an older version of Eric Reed. Like, that's the best I can kind of explain him. Um, and then Shalom Lonnie is, is was very productive, decent athleticism, but he's a seventh rounder, so he's just going to be a special teamer for the rest of his life until something happens like either either call Joseph gets another injury which I hope not but that's like the, the only way for Shalom Lani to actually become a starter is that there was a lot of injuries that happened but he's definitely or maybe have, he ends up on a different team or something yeah or something like that but I do think he has at least the talent to become a starter not just a special teamer just because he played at Washington State but but yeah so I, I don't really think the Raiders really helped their secondary out that much. And they honestly were kind of redundant in most of their draft. Like, they, they drafted guys like Eddie Bennett. I don't, I don't want to get into the Raiders draft. Secondary-wise, Dallas, I think they did well. Green Bay did well. And then Seattle just threw a bunch of darts at the wall, and, and maybe some of them will hit. <laughs> I think some of them will hit. But they did a lot of, this guy's really productive but not athletic. Let's get that guy. This guy's really athletic, but not very productive. Let's get that guy. You know, like that was basically Seattle's draft. <laughs> okay. Let's get total and, opposites. Musical chairs right. with data. Essentially with data. <laughs> Musical chairs with data. Uh, okay. And there were other teams that announced that they were going to strengthen their secondary through the draft and maybe didn't accomplish as much as they could have. Who are some of the teams that drafted multiple defensive backs in the 2017 draft, but once again, came up a little short in terms of getting the most bang for their draft buck. Hmm. I'm trying to think. Well, let me, let me check on um, yeah, Washington's draft. Yeah, that draft. <laughs> um. <laughs> yes, that draft. I mean, they got Fabian Moreau. Um, the big, the big Speaking issue with him is that, yeah. Oh, what were you saying? I was just saying. Speaking of hype, he's gotten a lot of hype, but he doesn't have a lot of stuff to back it up. He's very athletic. Yeah. Um, which is the main thing, you know, ninety-eight percent all explosiveness, ninety-nine percent all speed, ninety-three percent all flexibility, but his age score is fifty point four one out of a hundred. His production scores 44.29 out of 100, 56.69 in terms of pass selection market share, which doesn't really hit pro bowl or all pro level in terms of pass selection market share. And he also has an injury history where it just keeps getting longer with the torn pec, you know, torn pectoral um, on top of the other things he's had to deal with. Um, I still don't know how this is going to turn out. You know, uh, he's a great athlete. 
but the one thing I usually tell people is that if a guy is a great athlete and the production doesn't match that, they usually don't really become much of anything except the disappointment. So we'll, we'll see. You mentioned the numbers in terms of his production. Who's been the most successful corner, at least in the work that you've done, who had numbers like that? Maybe the guy wasn't a superstar, but yeah, he had um, a pretty good career. Like uh, Leon Hall? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, I guess or, you wouldn't be violently upset if you got Leon Hall there. Or Washington. Not Washington. Um, actually, I think it is Washington. He's a corner from Maryland. The Raiders drafted him. Um, I think Fabian oh. Washington. Dynamite? Yeah, I was going to say, Fabian Washington was one of those really fast guys. He was like a yeah. four, three, two, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, yeah. But he wasn't. But he wasn't from Maryland. He was from Nebraska. Right, Nebraska. Sorry, sorry. sorry. I'm, I'm mixing up. See, Maryland's in the Big Ten, so now I, I think, you know, <laughs> which makes yeah. no sense. But it makes yeah. no sense. But yeah, Fabian Washington uh, is another one of those guys. Leon Hall, Fabian Washington. Um, but then again, those guys didn't think they have like extensive injury histories. Although Leon Hall has some injury history when he got to the NFL, but that's a totally different story. Um, but yeah, guys like that. Guys that would probably end up on like primetime's top 10 list a couple times in a season, but then that's it for their career, kind of. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's sort of, like, the the best case with Fabian Moreau is that. But I don't know. I've just – I've seen his film. I, I see his production. I see his age. I see his injury history. I just don't think good things are going to happen. So that's that's all I really – that's all I got to say. Like, I just – I Fabian Moreau is just a guy that I think got a lot of hype because of athleticism testing, which is true. Because as soon as the combine ended, he was just rising everywhere. And I – you know, and even some people are like, I thought you were a data guy. Why don't you like Stephen Moreau? And I'm like, because I am a data guy. Because, like, there's there's inconsistencies here, you know. Um, I've seen this movie before. Yeah. So there, there's just lots of stuff like that with him. But then on top of that, they get guys like Monte Nicholson, who you and me both, Bill, we, we, we saw Monte Nicholson on film and we were just like, meh, you know. <laughs> like, meh. He's okay, but he wasn't like day two hype, which is what he was getting to first round hype even um, over him. Yeah, and he does I, I have remember, I remember I had to, when I first started hearing first round stuff, I then made myself watch two games just to make sure I hadn't gone crazy. And I'm thinking, if you're talking, you know, hey, fourth, fifth, uh, I can kind of get with you, but there's no way, there's no way. In, especially in this defensive back class, you're going to take a guy like that in the first couple of rounds. That's just crazy talk. Yeah. And he does have size, but that's the one thing I'll never, you know, the, the, the best safeties in the last, this is a, this is a true story. The best, like the, the elite safeties, the multiple off-road safeties, all those guys uh, in the last 20 years have been safeties that have been 5'11 or less for the most part. Um, and there's been now, a people occasional 6'3 guy. Right. People will point to guys like Cam and say, well, look at this, you know, giant. Yeah, but he's a strong show. safety. 
Oh, he's about free safety. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, free safety. I mean, I'm talking well, no, about those guys have always looked Eric Weddle. Yes, right. <laughs> no, you're right. right. Nowadays, those guys have always Eric Weddle. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, like, we get into this whole debate about safety. Like, oh, well, safety's got to be, you know, oh, he's not six foot two. Like, it isn't the cornerback position. Like, there's no correlations to arm length in the safety position like there is at the cornerback position, which makes sense because safeties aren't always asked to – I mean, sometimes they're asked to cover guys, but – not consistently, you know, sometimes they're asked to play single high, you know, they're asked to do a bunch of different stuff. So um, they don't necessarily need to have 31 inch, 33 inch arm length, you know, to, to do what, like to do what Eric Little does. Like he's a guy that has at least what I had recorded was about 29 and three quarters inch arm length. Oh, wow. Uh, I have longer arms than Eric Little. Yeah. But he still was able to get six, plus interception, you know, like he was able to do things with those little arms, is what I'm trying to say, that, that would make him <laughs> right. a superstar. So right. arm length is just not the most important thing when it comes to free safety position. And even the strong safety position, you definitely have the Sean Taylors and the Cam Chancellors, like you said, but then you have like a little guy like Troy Palomar, who I, I'm not saying he's little, uh, but I am saying that he's not exactly a 6'4", you know, crazy, ridiculous thing, you know. So... I just think the safety position when it comes to heights and stuff is a little overrated. And Monty Nicholson is basically that. He's, he's tall, he's length, but he doesn't really hit any of the solo tackle market share production of an elite guy, nor do the interception market share, or even the past flexion market share stuff of an elite strong safety. Um, and testing-wise, he didn't do any flexibility testing. So that's all. Every time, any time a safety doesn't do short shell three-cone stuff, I worry. <laughs> You know, it's difficult that. to assume something good. I'll put it that way. Yeah. It's hard to so, it's hard to feel like he would have killed that. So they got that. And then they ended the draft, which was only, only one of the few mistakes I had when I was doing the, the draft grades on every team uh, was I, I had Josh Harvey Clements to the Vikings, which just made so much sense to me, but I actually went to the Redskins. Uh, and Clemens is just a guy that production-wise just isn't really there. Athleticism-wise, is below average in terms of everything. And not only that, he has 13.05 speed for his size and then 17.99 flexibility for his size at a position where he has to run some, you know, right? I mean, so, I mean, Josh Harvey Clemens just overall just wasn't productive and just wasn't athletic. Uh, and then, of course, they end with Joshua, Joshua Holsey, who's more of like a nickel corner kind of guy. He isn't bad. He just isn't amazing. So I just don't really think the Washington really – they drafted a bunch of secondary guys, but I just don't think any of those guys are going to be hugely impactful. Yeah. I'm not – once again, just went up. We're not always sure what some teams are doing. And some teams – this is the danger of, you know, just watch the tape or just watch the traits or just watch the whatever, is that – even the people who are doing quote-unquote cross-checks, if they use the same methodology and have the same velocity, then why bother with the, with the cross-check? What do you cross-check? You know, if you have the exact same sort of prejudices, assumptions, and, and methods, how 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 cross is this check? You know, how, you know, how much well, check exactly. is it it's Exactly. It's essentially like this. If you're going to do data work, and you you make the thresholds for it, and you do all this stuff for it, and the data contradicts whatever your perceived belief was about a player, and you still continue to have that perceived belief about it, 
then don't even do data at all because what's the point, you know, <laughs> because, data, I mean, data to me, sure, film has a part in every single thing, and you're able to take film and even make data out of film, you know, which is what most teams already do. But right. if you have data and you spend all this time gathering, and that's the thing too, coaches aren't spending all their time gathering data, you know. So, like, they just don't, they just don't do the, that sort of perspective. But what I'm doing is, is if you are going to use data, you need to at least listen to the data when it screams at you or it says, don't do this, you know, and these are the risks, like, and these are significant risks. If you don't, if you don't take it that way or you manipulate the data where you go, you know, he didn't really hit the speed score we needed to hit, but we had a couple scouts that had him timed here. So let's just use that number, you know, like stuff like that. Or, oh, he didn't get a very good wonder lick. So we'll give him the test again and give him a whole other hour to take it, you know, stuff like that. So like, it just, it just takes all the data out of it. Like it, it is, data is not going to help you at all if you do stuff like that. But that's what teams consistently do. And then they still don't get it. You know, they just don't have the discipline for it. Unfortunately, at least some teams, but um, but that's the issue is that if you're going to do data, you need to at least apply it, which is why there's lots of people who include data. Like, I don't know. There's lots of like draft guides I was reading recently that had like data stuff in it, but it was just background noise, you know, like it's just like why even have it there if you're not actually going to use it is, is all I'm saying, you know. Like, if it's just there in the background just to be some cool thing, you know, and you don't really do anything with it, it's just kind of a waste. Got it. Thinking about linebackers and, you know, we're still use traditional 4-3, um, both interior and exterior, guys that play the Sam, the Will, uh, guys that would be playing the Mike in sort of a traditional linebacker role, whatever term you want to use, other than the term that most people use that I don't particularly enjoy. But the amongst those groups, and once again, this is another position of need for a lot of teams in the NFL, based on the work you did, which teams did the best job of shoring up their, their linebacker group and then what teams that announced or had made it clear that they intended to upgrade their linebacking course did you know, the least uh, to do that. I think Jacksonville did. I mean, because they got Blair Brown, you know, who's basically like the real version of Miles Jack, maybe, you know. Okay, gotcha. You know, maybe, you know, I, I, you know, he's super athletic. I mean, he te- he basically athleticism wise, he was he was a better athlete than Luke Kuechly. Pretty decent production overall too. Uh, ended up getting that guy, the guy I hope the Raiders would draft, but we didn't draft him. So, um. Who else got linebackers? Arizona has Hassan Reddick as a as a pursuit linebacker. I don't think that's the best thing, but I think it could work out theoretically. Uh, but I just don't think he will be elite or anything else like that. Like none of the linebackers in this class had elite profiles. You know, even Ruben Foster, for as much love as Ruben Foster got, as much hate I got for not loving him. There just wasn't anything on paper that said this is an elite linebacker. Um, so there was really no linebackers that really fit that sort of bill. I think Miami with Raycon 
with Raquan Williams, might have at least a long-term starter. Indianapolis with Anthony Walker might have a long-term starter. And, of course, Houston with uh, Zach Cunningham will have a long-term starter. But for the most part, um, no team really got, like, an elite linebacker prospect because there just wasn't any elite linebacker prospects, you know, uh, in terms of this class. So. Okay. And any other groups of linebackers, any other teams that were in need of linebackers that maybe did a pretty good job showing it showing it up, or is that was that it? That was it. Wow. All right. <laughs> there are teams that there's teams that need linebackers, but there's no linebackers to get. Right. You know? Um so it's kinda hard to fix a problem when you don't have any uh you know, players to fix it with. So that's kind of what this class was, a linebacker. Gotcha. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, this might be a hard one to ask, but I'll ask you anyway. So of the teams that did draft linebackers and had sort of felt that they were in need, but didn't maybe, based on the work you do, didn't, didn't really find what they what they were looking for, who, who fell furthest away from the goal of getting it you know, a high-impact, high-value linebacker who's going to help improve your defense. What teams drafted the, you know, right. linebackers? Uh, yeah, maybe many teams that maybe doubled up at the position did, you know, did so without, like I said, getting getting good return on their investment. Well, Detroit with um, Jared Davis, which apparently there's a fan base for Jared Davis. Yes, but there's you know. a huge fan base odd. for Jared Davis. At least. Well, tell us, tell um, us why know. it's odd, Jim. <laughs> well, it's it's odd because when I when I did Jared Davis's profile, uh, you know, basically data profile, he basically was a less athletic version of Ernie Sims. Apparently, Ernie Sims was, was going to become this amazing uh, all-pro linebacker, but just got injured all the time, I guess. That was this sort of excuse. But based on the solo tiger market share productions, he was like 64 out of 100 at Florida State, which it doesn't really hit the Pro Bowl level of 77. It doesn't really hit the All-Pro level of, 80, of uh, 91 or higher when it comes to solo tiger market share production. But Jared Davis is basically identical to Ernie Sims. The 64.89 is Jared Davis's solo tiger market share, which is pretty close to Ernie Sims. He was 64-ish. Uh, their age is very similar. And the only real difference is that Ernie Sims was a better athlete. Um, and then the main excuse I get back when I make that comparison is, well, Ernie Sims and Jerry Davis are similar, except when you put on the tape. But as far as I'm concerned, from the tape that I saw, Jerry Davis, like even the UMass tape, like he allowed some touchdowns in that game that should not have, for as athletic of a specimen that he is, Bill, there were some plays yeah. that happened just because he wasn't, you know, putting two and two together, I guess. Right. Well, I remember Ernie Sims quite well, and he was one of the first of those, you know, these guys have now gotten more acceptable, but he was sort of on the cutting edge of the mini linebackers. He was a, you know, bite-sized little linebacker. Very quick, very, very, I seem to remember him as being extremely quick and explosive. I worried about him at the point of attack in college, and, you know, obviously those concerns carried over to the NFL. I think he'd gotten his weight up to 231 at the time of the combine. I can't remember if he ever had any PED 
you know, sort of smoke surrounding him or not. But right. he, he was clearly heavier at the combine than he was when you watched him during the year. And it looked like he put on a significant amount of weight in a very short amount of time. Still tested well, you know, so it wasn't like it was bad weight, but it right. seemed to me to be a significant amount, good, bad, or indifferent. It seemed to be a significant amount of weight, and like I said, I'm not accusing him of anything, but uh, it was one of those things. It was the amount of weight. It was, yeah, it was significant. It was phys- You could spot, I mean, if you'd watched him on tape and you saw him in the combine, you'd be like, huh. You know, that's, that's weird. <laughs> That's a noticeable like, amount of weight. I, I, mean, I didn't see I didn't see those veins before. Is is that what you're trying to say? You know, I, um, my my I'm guessing, but he looked like he was a good more than ten pounds heavier than he was during this. My guess would be probably thirteen or so pounds heavier. My guess than what he right. probably was during the season. From you know, I'm just eyeballing using my quote unquote scout side, but he was thicker perceptibly thicker in, in a couple of areas of his body. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, my big issue is just with Jared Davis is that he doesn't hit the production thresholds he needs to hit in terms of high-quality outcomes. And on film, there are reasonable concerns that nobody else right. seems to pick. I don't know why. I, I, I'm not trying to say, again, I'm not trying to say I'm an authority in linebacker evaluation. I'm just always amazed that when it comes to linebacker evaluation, I have vastly different views on linebackers than everybody else. So, I don't know. But I just, when I saw Jared Davis, I just didn't really see a guy who instincts-wise was really all that amazing. And then the data kind of backed that up to a significant degree. Um, So, and they drafted Jared Davis first round, you know, late, late first. So, right. Right. Pretty high for a guy like that. And then yep. instead of getting Kevin King, you know, they got Ted Tabor. So that's, you know, I guess consolation prize. Yeah, I don't know. Um, hmm. In terms of that sort of thing. So, yeah. So th- that draft for Detroit was just bad in general, but the linebacker position that they got just didn't really make much sense, uh, at least in terms of, uh, you know, what they did. Uh, let me see. Any other team? Some teams just didn't draft that many at all. Philadelphia didn't really draft any. Pittsburgh didn't really draft any linebackers. Okay. So this is one of the I things where the sort of fit. I guess this is one of the situations where I guess the fitness of the class wasn't just talk. It seems from what you're saying in terms of production and other things. This was truly a thin class at the linebacker position, the tr- quote unquote traditional linebacker. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And the <sighs> pass rushers, you know, the I'm not a fan of the term edge, as you know, because like I said, in my whole entire life, I've never heard a coach say, hey, kid, you 96, you're in there at edge, but whatever. Uh,. The defensive ends and three, four outside linebackers. There, every team needs pass rush, I guess, really. But which teams did the best job of finding it, and then which teams fell wide of the mark once again? Which teams didn't fix or add to their, or at least not successfully fix or add to their their pass rushing group, based on the work you do? Right. Uh, well, 
well, San Francisco did because they got Solomon Thomas. So I mean that I think that fixes uh, you know, they, they have a premier pass rusher there, at least in terms of the work I do, he kinda of hits everything off the charts. Um, Cincinnati, I mean they got Jordan Wolf and they got Carl Lawson. So I would think huh. I would hope draft Twitter would be happy with that type of draft. I don't know. But, you know, Jordan Willis is kind of, uh, you know, again, has every sort of thing you're looking for. And then on top of that, they get Carl Austin, who isn't amazing either. You know, like he isn't, like there are some concerns with him based on data, you know, in terms of flexibility testing, but he does have enough stuff that he could be a long-term starter. So they got, I think, good value, at least in terms of that pick. Uh, New Orleans, you know, I got Trey Hendrickson. So I think that might be kind of interesting sort of thing to follow. And um, there's any other teams. I think that's really about it. But, I mean, those teams, at least in terms of uh, Cincinnati and New Orleans, I think probably did the best in terms of getting um, pass rushers, at least in terms of value and where they got them. You know, it's kind of the big thing that comes to them. Yes. Well, I agree. There's... Here's what I kept noticing about that. Of course, I, I guess I keep saying this about lots of position groups. What I kept noticing about the pass rushers was I thought this was actually a pretty darn good class. It just seemed that, once again, the, the sort of favorites or some of the favorites that a lot of people had coming into the season just didn't end up having that kind of year. But there were plenty of, of guys who, whether or not they were highly, you know, highly talented, were extremely productive. And and the vast majority of them tested well, so there was a, to me it seemed to be a, a good solid group from which to choose. But if you were just super attached to a particular team in a particular conference, and you know that guy in that conference didn't become what you what you thought he'd become, I guess that you know might shake some people away. Bums you out, yeah. But again, when the facts change, you change your mind. You know, if you're saying Tim Williams is an elite pass rusher. And he doesn't test like an elite pass rusher. You change your mind. Well, you probably shouldn't have had Tim Williams as an elite pass rusher anyway, based on film. But you know, I just, I just think when it comes to pass rushers, there was just sort of this gravitation to. Because that was the weird thing too is most of the like top hype pass rushers came in in the combine and just stunk it up. You know, Charles Harris and Tim Williams, and, um, even Al Quand and Muhammad. You know, it was another guy that got some late buzz. You know, he didn't really do much anything at the combine, but the guys he did really well, exceptionally well, like Solomon Thomas. I mean, I was in a, you know, I'm in a, a draft league right now, Bill, where people took Taco Charlton over Solomon Thomas. Like, that happened. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> in, in that league. Oh, my. Like, it's just ridiculous. It's the hate on Solomon Thomas over just, like, well, you know, when he's lined up inside and, you know, he gets pushed around a bit, you know, and he has three offensive linemen attack it. Well, yeah, if you have three offensive linemen chipping at you, yeah, you're probably going to get pushed around a bit. So, uh, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, the Salman Thomas hate, the Jordan Willis hate, essentially, too, where he tested really well and the people are going, I just can't, I just can't see it on tape. He just, does, he just looks stiff. Do they even know what stiffness looks at? Are they confusing yeah. explosiveness with stiffness? You know, like 
Because, sure, guys like, I mean, yeah, guys like Charles Harris tested well in terms of explosive lower body strength, but he didn't test well in terms of speed, didn't test well in terms of flexibility. Those are two completely different types of traits. You know, take Chris McKinley, tasted really well in terms of speed, but didn't test well in terms of flexibility. Again, like, there seems to be this sort of, like, I am a great judge of edgeness athleticism that they don't, they haven't earned that right to really say that. Sure, you can talk a lot about edge and, you know, and this and that, or pass rushers in general, you know, about, oh, well, there's a good spin move here, there's good this, good that, but eventually the buck has to, to, you have to hit a point where you go, am I just saying a bunch of stuff that really doesn't matter because I, I can't really, like, I can't judge the difference between explosiveness and speed, or I can't judge the difference between flexibility and some other type of athleticism because there just seems to be too much of this because the whole Jordan Willis stiffness thing, I don't know what they're talking about saying he's stiff. I didn't get it. You know, I, that I was didn't understand another why. Another one of narratives that somehow his tape wasn't very good and he was stiff and he just was getting all these sacks through. Well, it wasn't because he had another great pass rusher on the team to divert people's attention because I watched a lot of Kansas State and no, they did not have another pass rusher of note at least. Uh, you know, somebody that I felt like you had the game plan for. I mean, he was the guy. And like I said, there were criticisms that I agreed with that stick, like the lack of a plan and the lack of a plan B because he didn't really have a plan A. But, but, but despite some of those things, every single time you throw on the tape, he is – for people who think that whole disruption is in production thing, they should have been slobbering all over him because the guy was in the backfield all the time. Even when he didn't really right. make a play, he still got but, in the backfield all the time. But the edge gurus didn't like mm-hmm. him. So well, isn't the edge a, gurus don't like him. Isn't he a quote-unquote force player? He's a force player, but the edge gurus didn't like him. Oh, all right. Yeah. All right. The force uh-huh. players doesn't matter anymore, you know. Oh, I don't know if you know oh. this or not. You could be a force player, but if they don't like you on film, it doesn't matter if you're a force player or not. That's the new oh. thing. Oh. The inconsistency, see? Um, oh. I, mean, I hate to say that, but I'm just saying, like, there's a lot of edge gurus, you know, that oh. specifically are seen as the edge, the authorities on the edge position. And a lot of them didn't like, the, you know, Jordan Willis or didn't like huh. Trey Hendrickson or didn't like these other guys. And huh. then the combine came and contradicted everything. And then they still stuck to their beliefs because that's what you do. Like, I don't know, because you can't <laughs> be wrong. You know? Because you can't be wrong. Yes. Right. Because you can't be wrong. There you go. <laughs> All right. Because yes. if you're so wrong, do... then you're not an edge uh-huh. guru anymore, you know. Oh. You can't be edge guru if you're wrong. What's point uh. of being a guru? Ah. Right? All right. Yeah. I don't know. So, I'm so, just if saying. Willis, so if Jordan Willis has like nine sacks as a rookie, now what? I don't know. Maybe, I mean, <laughs> he was drafted in the third round. Uh-huh. So, and he's dead by the Cincinnati Bengals, who are like, it's like the worst place for him to fall because since they bangles are might bangle it up, you know, they might <laughs> have him as a rotational pass rusher. 
I don't know. I mean, Jordan Willis just got a lot of hate, and I didn't get it. PFF even had good grades for Jordan Willis, but my issue with PFF continues to be the selective choices and their like the selective narratives, like you said, to where Jordan Willis is a high graded PFF guy, and then a couple weeks later, there's just no mention of Jordan Willis at all and no mention of how highly graded he is and they're not pushing Jordan Willis anymore. They're pushing some other guy, you know, right. and comparing to other players and stuff. So huh. it's selective criticism is all I'm trying to say, or selective, very selective choices. When you have a lot of data and you don't have it freely available, you can be very selective in terms of what you present is all, is all I'm trying to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't understand why Jordan Willis was hated so much or why Trey Hendrickson was hated so much or why, uh, you know, any of the well, other. Hendrickson, the Hendrickson thing was always, you know, well, he, you know, only played against whoever he played against. And they didn't like the people who played against. That was the thing I always heard about. He's, well, he was playing against blah, blah, blah. And yeah. He's just an effort guy. He's a try-hard guy. Until, of course, but, he trusted, trusted like a really good athlete. So Sure. Uh, but... Like we have like we have Baltimore with with uh, Tim Williams, and again I didn't really quite get the Tim Williams sort of like Tim Williams based on the tape that I saw was more of a day two guy anyways, you know yep. regardless of the pot smoking and stuff and the other stuff and, and then anything else right and then his production was just below average in terms of everything else like that and people go well he's a rotational guy and then I go well Derek Thomas wasn't a rotational guy you know like. Like, you're basically saying this is a top five pass rusher, top ten pass rusher, an elite pass rusher with all this potential, goes into the combine and, and tests like Paul Kruger, you know. <laughs> what else are you going to say now? I don't know, you know, but that's that, that's all I know about this edge class. It was a very good edge class. It's just all the guys that were, uh, at least data-wise, that were good edge guys, nobody liked. So... It was a contradiction, to say the least. Right. So the film didn't. It's like the whole Chandler Jones thing all over again, where people are like, I just didn't see it on film with Chandler Jones. When data wise, you pretty much hit everything <laughs> you wanted in terms of a a decent pass rusher. You know, like in terms yep. of athleticism, in terms of production, especially, um, you hit every sort of thing you wanted. But I guess people just they couldn't see it with them. So. But I've heard people try to know. say that Chandler Jones somehow refutes. The data thing. Now, maybe it's because he wasn't a force player. I don't know. I, that I don't know. Yeah, sure. well, that's a force player thing. See, I'm a, I'm a different kind of cat, but I use every data. <laughs> I use production data. I use that level data. Like, I can, I can find right. it. You know, like Chandler Jones, in terms of his data profile, uh, was very Joey Bosa like, anyways. Like, he's very productive. He didn't quite have like elite explosiveness or elite flexibility, but he did have above average explosiveness, above average flexibility on top of being, uh, you know, tall. And I guess the, the main excuse with him not being a force player is that he was injured during the process. Cause you see a lot of that too. He didn't test like a force player, but he was injured during the process. So my model is sound. If he was, if he was healthy, he would have tested like a force player. See, see how that works. But, oh. or you could not do that at all. And you could just look at the production data and look at the athleticism data that he did have, even if he was injured or not, and go and conclude from that that, yes, this is a guy that can become a above-average pass rusher at the next level because that's what his profile said. 
based on his production, based on his athleticism, based on his other short stuff, and length and size and all that kind of stuff. So, but I guess we just couldn't see it with Chandler Jones. So. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's the problem that some people have. When, the, when some people's perception of data is these sort of simplified things, the sparky, force player tricks or whatever, these these things that sort of, you know, hey, let's make a big analytics gumbo or whatever, um, which I know can be fun. I mean, making gumbo can be kind of cool. You get to throw a bunch of different things in there and See what happens. See what comes out, and all that stuff. That's yeah. I, I get but the, it, but the gumbo has to it. taste good, you know. Ah, it has yeah. to taste okay. good. If you put a cup of salt in your gumbo, it's going to taste horrible. You know, you ruin the gumbo because you put too much salt in it, and that's what a lot of these things. Like, there's nothing wrong with gumbo, but there isn't this concerted effort to actually see if the product you're putting out tastes good. You know. There's no flaws mm-hmm. in it, is what I'm trying to say. And unfortunately, a lot of these gumbo method stuff is flawed. But force players isn't even really gumbo. But I don't know. I'm 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 over force players at this point, just because uh, it isn't used. Like it was this innovative thing, and then now it's like kind of being, you know, I don't know what the term is, but marginalized. I guess is the way of putting it where film is the only thing that matters and you know this or that which again film is important like anything else but you know there, there's other things in film that can help you out like data and you know, I don't know. but yeah i mean that was the, that was the issue with the edge class it's just there, there wasn't uh the guys that everybody liked it test well and as a result they just turned their nose up after that point because of that so and they don't do what i do either so they don't really have that perspective either because you know, I can't really like Vulcan mind meld with, you know, with anybody, you know, in terms of data stuff either. So it's kind of hard to get people to think the way that I do if you don't really do all the stuff that I do. So, Right. And another class that didn't get a tremendous amount of love and some of it might be, well, I mean, I guess the part of it did, I think the three techniques types and, five technique projection types. Some of them got a fair amount of love. There wasn't a lot of love for the zero and one technique types, at least more because there were so few of them from which to choose. But tell me about the D-tackle class in terms of, once again, uh, what teams maybe, even though there might not have been a huge, wonderful corticopia, but there are some teams that had a need there, managed to get it fixed, or most likely fixed it based on the data and other things that you study. And there are the teams that clearly maybe didn't work out for them, or maybe we'll see, but it's less likely to work out for them based on the work you do. So walk me through that and, you know, the teams, maybe the top couple in terms of filling the need and then maybe the, you know, the bottom couple, I guess, in terms of not quite getting there. I guess the first place to start is Jonathan Allen uh, you know, he was a guy that didn't have, you know, elite athleticism, but did have above average speed and flexibility and it had really, really good production, uh, top of all that other kind of stuff. 
who just fell for kind of superficial reasons, you know, or at least reasons that were like, oh, he has arthritis in his shoulders. I'll tell that to the Texas A&M guard that he threw to the side, like, you know, like a rag, you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, what is it, like that guard is like, oh, you have arthritis in your shoulders. You shouldn't be able to do this. Like, it kind of makes sense that he's so violent with his push-pull that it, it does make sense that his shoulders are, you know, hurt. But, you know, like, I just didn't really get the sort of why he fell as far as he did. But I do think he fell to a pretty decent spot to be a productive guy. He isn't quite Reggie White. He's been getting Reggie White to the um, oh no, no, no! No one should get Reggie White comparison. <laughs> calling him the Secretary of the Defense or what? Hey, come yeah, on! Yeah. But well, I mean, no, no, no offense, even no offense, even to JJ Watt, who's a very good player. He's not Reggie White. There's there hasn't many Reggie White since Reggie White. He's not. But he is a guy. Who's, he's very. That's the thing too. Uh, he's one of those guys that is fairly refined in certain aspects of his game. Therefore, his ceiling is low. Right, that's how that works. But I don't see it that way. I see it as a guy who's fairly refined in certain things, especially in terms of hand usage, who has just enough athleticism to be a highly impactful player, who is also really productive. He's going to be a very good player. Um, best of all time, greatest of all time, stuff like that. Probably not, but he does have the potential to be at least a very, very impactful defensive tackle. Um, so I, I just felt like it was kind of. Uh, from the fall, but he's definitely one of those guys that's kind of like that from that kind of position. Uh, the other sort of defensive tackles that were taken, I think Jillo Johnson going to Minnesota, I think is a good fit. He was basically identical to, to uh, Demato, uh, Demato Pico uh, from oh, an athleticism yeah. standpoint and from a production yeah. standpoint too. So I think Minnesota got uh, another Demato Pico, you know, in terms of uh, the other head coach getting a guy who's similar to like what he had in Cincinnati, you know. So I think that's for the good fit. And then the other guy is Green Bay and, and Mon Adams, you know, Montrevious Adams. I think that's a fairly good uh, fit with them. He's not going to be amazing. Like, he's never going to be great at holding it down against the run and stuff like that. Like, that's just not his bag. But he is going to be pretty good when it comes to rushing the passer and uh, getting in the backfield and doing stuff like that. So, if they can minim, if they can maximize getting him on passing downs, you know, ba- ba- basically making sure that he's there in obvious pass downs and have him just rush the passer, I think they'll do really well with him. But if you have him, he's never really going to be a great every down player, but at least he's going to be a pretty good uh, penetrator slash pass rusher guy for Green Bay. So I felt like that was a pretty good pick too. And by the same token, what teams maybe ended up coming, if not empty, maybe closest to empty in their quest to, you know, fill that need in the middle of their defense to the line? Well, again, the Giants with John, with uh, with Dalvin Tomlinson. You know, they think Dalvin Tomlinson is going to replace what they lost in Jonathan Hankins. I don't think so. You know, that's not going to work. Uh, he isn't as productive as Jonathan Hankins. He isn't as athletic as Jonathan Hankins. And it's just not going to work out. So, I mean, just from production standpoint, athleticism standpoint, he doesn't quite hit any of those areas he needs to hit in terms of that sort of position. Uh, and I think in terms of other defensive tackles, I think, because there really wasn't that many drafted. 
not sure how many were. Yeah, I think that's about it. But, like, Dalvin Tomlinson is the only obvious defensive tackle that was drafted really, really, you know, second round high, top 50 player high, who just isn't really going to live up to the hype based on his production, based on his uh, athleticism and traits. And there was somewhat of a good amount of noise around the wide receiver class. First, early reports were that people didn't like it. Then they sort of warmed up to it. Some guys even managed to get a little bit overhyped. But what teams had the most success in terms of addressing the position based on the work you do, and then which teams fell furthest away from that goal? I think the team that did the best was probably Tennessee. You know, they get Corey Davis, they get Taewon Taylor. I think both those guys, you have a pretty good shot of hitting on the position with either one of those guys. Uh, Green Bay with Chris Godwin, I think, was a pretty good uh, position in terms of uh, what they got there. Um, the Jets did all right. I mean, our Darius, like if you take our Darius Stewart and Chad Hansen and you combine them, you know, you might have something like really, really impactful, but they're kind of, I mean, I, I think average wide receivers would be like the best case of both of them. And that's a little bit better than most people can say. So um, I would say it's kind of like that with those two players. Um, I think that's really about, in terms of uh, wide receiver, I think it's really about it in terms of teams that, um, kind of got a bunch and did really well with that, but it would be Tennessee and then followed by, uh, by, um, by that other team I mentioned, but yeah. Okay. So the Jets and Tennessee did a pretty good job. What teams, for what teams did it not work out as well? Right. Well, Minnesota. Oh, definitely. I mean, they get well, Ronnie Adams. So. They get Stacy Coley. And I I understand what they're trying to do. Rodney Adams and Stacy Coley have very similar athleticism skill sets to Stefan Diggs. But production wise, Stefan Diggs was a ninety plus percentile market share production guy. And Rodney Adams and Stacey Coley are sitting in the 60s to 50s in terms of their production. So Minnesota continues to not be very good at drafting wide receivers, with the exception of Stephon Diggs, who was realistically kind of uh, lucked into that. I I don't know. But, (laughs) I mean, Stephon Diggs had – I mean, Stephon Diggs had the profile of a highly productive speed wide receiver um, and that's pretty much what he became in the NFL. But just because you get a guy, that's the issue with Minnesota. I think they're doing analytics, but they're doing it the wrong way to where they look at athleticism data. You know, let's go get a bunch of guys that are just like Stefan Diggs as athletes. But it doesn't matter if you get a bunch of guys that are Stefan Diggs athletes if they don't have Stefan Diggs' production. Because, again, Stefan Diggs' production was 90-plus percentile in terms of, you know, passing his market production. Adams and Coley are, well, first of all, Adams kind of hit starter level, but Coley isn't even starter. Like starter level for passing yards market share production is 58 or higher. 
Coley was 54.60, and this is since the 1969 NFL draft class in terms of that hitting long-term starter level. So uh, they didn't really do well in terms of they got two wide receivers, but those guys are just not going to work out. On top of Treadwell, who was essentially like Mike Williams all over again, yeah, that's the last sort of guy. And it, it, you know, we'll see what happens with Mike Williams, you know, of Clemson. Uh, I didn't really like his film from the get-go. His testing came out. He was kind of average-ish in terms of every sort of athletic testing sort of thing. Explosive speed. Didn't do flexibility testing, which also kind of made me worry a lot. And then when it comes to his production, he he just didn't – everybody he compared himself to. You know, he got an interview where he's like, I'm like Des Bryant. I'm like Alshon Jeffrey. I'm like A.J. Green. All those guys, A.J. Green, Des Bryant, were 90-plus percentile production guys in college. Mike Williams is 67, which Treadwell was about 65, just put that into perspective. Like, I just don't see a scenario. Like, basically, Mike Williams has more things in common with, like, Dwayne Bowe, except Dwayne Bowe actually tested like a elite athlete when he came out. So it's that combination of not being an elite athlete in any one athletic testing thing you did on top of having production that isn't really that impactful. And he's already going to a pretty crowded wide receiver. I mean, Keenan Allen isn't a slouch. You know, uh, Tyrell Williams isn't a slouch. So, um, there isn't like a – he's going into a situation where I think he's of equal talent or less talent to the other guys on the roster. Like he isn't head and shoulders above everybody that is on the Chargers wide receiver group. So that's why I don't really think that's going to be the best situation, I guess, for him. Yeah, that's an interesting situation there. So if Mike Williams ends up being a less athletic version of Dwayne Bowe, I wonder how that will be received by, uh, well, obviously the fan base and, of course, draft Twitter as a whole. I know there are a lot of people that picked him as their wide receiver one. Yeah. Pretty much coming into the season and just stuck with it, it looked like. People said Treadwell was wide receiver one, too. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about wide receivers anymore. I, I, I All I know is that, and again, and people usually go, why are you so strong about your opinions? Well, when the data is so strong, I mean, you know, when, you, when you're talking about a data set going back to the 1969 NFL draft guys, like all the way to Gene Washington, you know, from Stanford, it's like how far it goes back. Man, Gene Washington um, was good. <laughs> yeah, he was good. Uh, you know, at all the great wide receivers you can talk about, the large ends, so all those guys is included in the sample. And all the great ones were 90-plus percentile producers, you know, all the, and even the the sort of not-so-great but still solid ones were A's area. And then you have these wide receivers like Treadwell and, uh, and Mike Williams who come out and they're like 60s in their production, like, and you're, and you're holding them up to the standard of those other guys. They fall short. So um, I just think we get – and it comes back to traits, too, wide receiver traits. Like, well, he has all the traits. He can box out guys. But, again, I just don't think that it's just too superficial of a reading to go, well, the ability to – it's like DGB all over again. Now, I don't think that Mike Williams is going to be as bad as, as Doral Green Beckham. <laughs> uh, but, 
it's the same thing where you watch Dora Green Beck and you go, wow, he can high point. He, he looks like Alshon Jeffrey here. He looks like, you know, Des Bryant here when they have no, it's just a very superficial reading of what made Des Bryant or Alshon Jeffrey or any of those guys. Great. You know, right. it's just, just because they're able to box out guys, that wasn't what made them great. It was on top of other traits, uh, you know, to their game. Um, so it's, it's, and it's also a, de-emphasizing of route running as well, you know, oh, to a certain extent, too. that's fucking nuts. Because you can right. run routes as we... with a big guy. I mean, look at Cortland Sutton. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and yeah. you, we've talked about this a lot, you know, you know, months ago, because Cortland Sutton didn't declare, but, like, what's the big difference between Mike Williams and Cortland Sutton? Like, they're same size, same thing, except Cortland Sutton is a much more deceptive wide receiver when it comes to just his route running. Yeah, and I think and he's going to test better as an athlete when it comes to things, especially, well, we don't know about short show and free cone, I guess, but right. I, I I believe whatever it was Williams would have done, Sutton would have would have been better in those areas. Exactly. Exactly. You know, Sutton actually tested production-wise with guys like Austin Jeffrey, with all those other big wide receivers that drafts would have perceived as whatever, you know. So I just don't. I don't get it. I don't know. I just don't get it. I don't understand why you could have – or the whole Ishmael Zamora debate, which I actually feel bad for Ishmael Zamora because every time we tweet something out, you know, like, um, you know, having fun here, this or that, and it's like dog beater, you know, um, stuff like that, you know, like, oh, you're going to beat the kids too. I'm like, jeez, man. <laughs> you know, but, um, but, like, you know, we get a little Ishmael Zamora thing. And, like, again, Ishmael Zamora, from a production standpoint, same production as Mike Williams. It's actually more productive than Mike Williams. And actually had 90-plus percentile explosiveness and speed when Mike Williams didn't have any of those sort of traits. And, yes, I do realize that Ishmael Zamora is raw. You know, uh, he is raw. But I, the whole, like, people going, oh, it's ridiculous. You can't say Mike Williams, you know, is, is lesser or equal to Ishmael Zamora when – Based on the data, they kind of are, you know. You can well, definitely I mean, make the case that is, Williams is, is a Mike bit Williams more refined. Not, is, 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 yeah, I say Mike Williams, while he's a bit more refined, he's not young, you know, he's not young Jerry Rice. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else no. to put this. There's, there's some work there for well, him to do. Again, Jerry Rice was also 90-plus percentile. Right. Um it's it's just again it continues to be that sort of issue or disconnect with wide receivers where it's it comes back to well they're big wide receivers that's really it's always that they're big wide receivers and they can box out guys and that's a strategic so advantage don't care if they actually know how to play the position is that what it yes. means now but that's the argument that keeps getting bandied about it was the same argument with Kelvin Benjamin it was the same argument with you know, well, Quan Treadwell, same argument with, you know, all those guys. U.S. Well, Mike Williams. And... Right. Yeah. You know, well, they're big, and they don't need to be good runners because they can just box people out and win. And, you know, that was Mike Williams's whole career at Clemson. Look at him, you know, out jump this 5'10 cornerback. Nobody can right. stop was, him. Unstoppable. It was Mike Williams' whole career at USC. It was uh, Lima Swede's whole career at Texas, and it was oh gosh, who else? Uh, a long list of big wide receivers. I think some of the other ones where people said this. 
especially ones that weren't really able to run routes. Here's what I've what I've learned in my forty now almost into the mid forty years of, of watching football and thirty seven ish, thirty six plus ish years of actually doing player grading. And of course when I started, you know, it was I mean, I didn't I didn't have a, a lot of methodology, you know. I didn't know. I mean, it was hard to even find games to watch. There was no ESPN yet. There was, I mean, it was, it was you know, the Dark Ages, primitive, stone knives, bear skits. But even then, I noticed that guys who had long-term NFL success were route runners, no matter what size they were. The Hall of Fame doesn't have raw jump ball guys in it. You know what I mean? Like the guys who are in the Hall of Fame could all run routes. Yep. But apparently we don't care about routes anymore. (laughs) All about development. The NBA all over again. I guess, sort of. But not really. I mean, and when people people say, and this is some people use this for or against or whatever, the whole, once again, metrics matter or they don't matter, whatever. They always bring up the LSU, you know, once again, 2014, the LSU, you know, twins, the tandem, Odell Beckham and... Uh, and Jarvis Landry. And Jarvis Landry. Yeah. But both of those are really good route runners. Yeah. Well, and they were both really productive for both and of them. Both you know, yeah. Landry was 89 plus percentile productive. Odell Beckham was wow. 85 plus. Um, wow. His uh, TD market share wasn't very good. You know, pinky pinkies up, but uh, but again, if you look at TD market share production, which uh, the difference in success outcomes is like a twenty five percent difference between passing yards market share production and TD market share production, you would stop using TD market share production completely at that point, in my opinion. You know, so mm-hmm. like it's uh, it's just not a very good indicator of not as good of an indicator. It's basically like the ten yard split to the forty. I guess is what I'm trying to say. But um, right. in terms of six, trying to find success players. But, yeah, I mean, Odell and both of them were super productive. Landry didn't really test the best, but he did have, which, again, is like consistently try to tell people was like, sure, you might not test the best. Like, wide receiver is one of the positions, uh, one of many positions, actually, but it's just one of those positions where, like, you could be an average athlete and have a career, you know, um, if you're really productive, you know, at the, at the, uh, at the college level, you know, and we've seen Alan Hearns is one of those guys. He was a very productive yeah. player and didn't test amazing, but he did at least test kind of Jarvis Landry-ish, you know, in terms of testing, and he ended up being, you know, a fairly good starter, and same thing with Jarvis Landry. So, uh, Nodo Beckham Jr., again, was the thing where he hit all the production marks you're looking for, and he has elite-level athleticism, but you just can't seem to put two and two together. I guess no. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that shouldn't have been a hard one to, to predict. Actually, when you look back on it, like, what, and like I said, I, we'll see what happens with Jordan Willis. I'm gonna stop harping on it, but I, I, I'll try to be classy about it. But I will certainly probably have some things to say if he in, ends up being as good as I think he might be. Now, the running back class, much discussed. Lots of running backs. Running backs are plenty. 
you know, whatever kind you want. There was more than one of them for you to, to have at. If you wanted a big back, there were a few of those, quite a few of those. If you wanted to, you know, sort of do everything back, utility back, there was a decent number of those. If you wanted a scat back, there was a decent number of those. If you just wanted a guy who was just a straight-line speed guy, there was a decent number of those. You know, do you need a guy who can catch the ball? Yes, good number of those. Not a bunch of guys were great in blitz pickup, but amongst the teams that needed to address the running back position and with what was available to them, obviously we have Carolina. That's an easy one. So let's exclude them for the purposes of the uh, of, of the uh, next two or three minutes of discussion. What teams not named the Carolina Panthers did the best job sort of beyond that or next to them or beneath them, I guess, in terms of addressing the running back position based on the work you do and then what teams, you know, ended up you know, shooting their, uh, you know, collective and individual load or collective and individual weapon or whatever it is uh, with the least amount of effect. Right. Well, I would say Tampa Bay did really well. I mean, they get Jeremy McNichols, who I'm a fan of. The only real concern with him is his fumble rate, which that's another sort of thing I was going to dive into, actually, during the offseason was um, uh, fumble rates of running backs and uh, sort of stuff like that, because he was one of the running backs who had kind of the most fumbles or one of the most high, or one of the higher fumble rates, I guess. But his production hits all the things you're looking for. His uh, athleticism marks, he was one of the more athletic. He basically was as athletic as the top, like he's pretty close to Mixon and Foreman in terms of athleticism uh, for his size. So he hits all those kind of marks out of the park. And I think he's honestly going into a pretty good position with Tampa Bay, who they have a running back who's always been injured, you know, like, it just seems like a good sort of spot for him to possibly break out in that situation. And he's also a guy that can kind of do a bit of both in terms of catching the football on the backfield and doing all that kind of stuff. So I just think McDickles is a good sort of fit. Uh, Green Bay with Aaron Jones. Uh, I know there's a lot of like Jamal Williams hype people out there, but huh. Jamal Williams didn't hit any of the athletic marks, like bottom end threshold athletic marks of a special running back. Like, we're talking like Arian. He didn't even hit Arian Foster level athleticism marks. So, and then you have a guy in Aaron Jones who has elite production with near elite explosiveness, near elite flexibility. Like, it just, I don't know, it just makes more sense that Aaron Jones would be the guy there. As much as they're like, Ty Montgomery's going to be the running back there, which just makes no sense. Ty Montgomery's a wide receiver you know it is like oh we're gonna go with the guy that was a wide receiver in college who was converted to a running back like come on really that's you gonna go with long term that guy but uh but yeah Aaron Jones kind of fits the bill in terms of every sort of thing that you're looking for uh Dalvin Cook ending up on the Vikings I think was a pretty good fit and I think people overblow this is going to be an interesting case to revisit is, is Dalvin Cook yeah. because I'm has, circling Jordan Willis in terms of things to come back to and revisit him. Circling, right. you know, the informant, obviously, you know, we you can't help but circle Dalvin Cook, uh, Kevin King, and 
you know, Pat Mahomes. I mean, these are certain things I'm circling, you know, uh, see, you know, where it goes, how it goes, how it plays out. Obviously, McCaffrey, you have to circle that one. Uh, that's one I'm definitely going to come back and revisit. Um, my guy, Taiwan Taylor, is a guy I've kind of circled. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, it's Zamora. That's a, another fascinating case study. And, then, you know, for better or worse, Mike Williams. That's another one I have circled as sort of a case study to come back and revisit. Right, because the thing about Cook is he has the production, obviously. He has a very high speed score. You know, 73.69 speed score is nothing to, to make fun of. It's just his explosion right. score is 23.61. His flexibility score is 23.95. His three-count didn't really hit the three-count it needed to hit in terms of high-quality NFL players, with the exception of DeMarco Murray, who's a big exception, because uh, he was a much more athletic overall player than even Cook. But all the stuff is there to kind of point to Cook being a, you know, a very good running back. It's just everything kind of athleticism-wise. And then fumble rate, too. There was a bit of that, too, with him, at least having a you know higher fumble rate than other backs in the class. Um, so there was that stuff pointing towards him maybe not being the most amazing running back ever. But I don't think that people should discount his speed. He is a above-average speed back. And that's his best trait, and that's why people were so in awe of him was his speed. Um, he just isn't, uh, you know, DeMarco Murray, which is what I would tell most people is they go, DeMarco Murray, and they go, well, go back and watch DeMarco Murray at Oklahoma. Like, you'll, you understand what I'm talking about, you know. He's just a much – like, if you think Dalvin Cook is fast, the DeMarco Murray, you know, um, in terms of a guy who's like 220 pounds, you know, heavy, like 10 pounds heavier and stuff. but. Yeah, Cook is kind of like that to where I think he's – I think it's a good spot for him to go. Uh, but there are some questions about, like, how good he's going to be. Like, it's very hard to uh, – to uh, you know, it, he's following Adrian Peterson. So, very hard to follow a guy like that. So, <laughs> But at the very least, I do think he has enough positives that he could become a, a decent long-term starter um, for them. Uh, but, you know, if that makes any sense. So, like, I think that was a good spot. Aaron Jones, they're making make, make the other sort of guys. And um, I think the last sort of guy who I think is a bit of a sleeper, but not really, is uh, Kareem Hunt. I know people keep saying Spencer Ware is the guy, but Spencer Ware was basically a, a 26 production guy at LSU, and Kareem Hunt is the 84.15 production guy at Toledo. So who's going to win? Let's see what happens, right? I think Kareem (laughs) Hunt has the better sort of shot just because he's proven to be a bell cow back at Toledo. And as much as Spencer Ware is kind of a, just a kind of a committee guy who kind of hung around, I just think that he's one of those backs that just, you know, he's one of those backs who hangs around, but eventually there's a guy who comes along and takes his spot, I guess. And you just can't do nothing about it. I think that's going to be Kareem Hunt, you know, possibly. But, but for the most part, those were all pretty good spots for for uh, sort of sleeper backs or whatever you're going to call those backs. You know. Yeah. So we've talked a little about the offensive line class in the past. I wanted to uh-huh. focus on, once again, it's another position where teams tend to add multiples. 
uh, very often will add multiples, double up, it's not even triple up. In terms of the teams that did invest multiple draft picks and offensive linemen, who amongst them came the closest to getting, you know, what they should have gotten or the closest based on the work you do to, you know, what you would have advised them to select? I think Baltimore, um, you know, they get Nico Saragusa, who based on his athletic testing is a, is a more explosive version of Gabe Jackson. Ooh. And on top of that, they get Jermaine uh, El- Elomizior, saying that wrong, but he's a super athletic guy and he's raw, but it's a very Kevin Pamphile ish situation with him, I guess. And that he he's never really you know six foot three a tackle. I don't know how to drill this into people's heads, but six, six people keep saying he's a tackle. He's six foot three. He's not going to be a tackle. Um, right. It's just already a disadvantage from a length standpoint, you know, and a size standpoint. So I just think him inside as a guard, he has ninety percentile athleticism across the board as an athlete. So there's potential that he could be something interesting if he takes to coaching and stuff like that. Cause he's a very raw player. I feel, but he does have very good athleticism. So it could be like a Kevin Pamphile ish kind of situation with him. Uh, so they basically get a Gabe Jackson like guy with a super duper athletic raw guy. And I think both those guys might end up being um, fairly impactful guys on their team. And I don't think they're going to, like, beat out Marshall Yonder or anything like that. But I do think that there's a chance that one of them can end up starting on the other side of Yonder and being a pretty good interior tandem, I guess, when it comes to that perspective. Okay. Interesting to know. And what teams, whether it be interior or outside, you know, tackle types, what teams that seem to have a pretty glaring me at the offensive tackle position, maybe didn't maximize their uh, their opportunity at that position in the draft. I mean, who who drafted offensive linemen, whether it be offensive, whether it be uh, off the tackle or offensive guard or centers? But in your mind, who were the teams based on the work you do that probably got the least amount of return on their bet? Well, you know, the Patriots. This isn't a new thing, though, but. They get Antonio Garcia, who is testing-wise actually mentally flopped. That's I had a double take when I saw it actually, but they pretty much have the same type of explosiveness, speed, and then a lack of flexibility. Um, so Garcia is definitely taller than Malik Watson, but same athleticism profile as Malik Watson. So let's see what happens, right? Is he going to, you know, become better than the link? Well, who knows? But just exact same sort of athletic profile. And then they finish it up with, with uh, Connor McDermott, who is really old. And at least the one thing that we know about him is he can't handle mom gear. So that's like the big <laughs> thing that we know is that he can't really handle mom gear. But, you know, not a lot of people can. But he definitely is just a guy that doesn't quite have all the goods when it comes to that sort of uh, – uh, position when it comes to him. Gotcha. Now, I don't need to watch this place because it's hunters. So, 
we won't waste any time on them since it's a position that certainly will, it hasn't already, change a lot of different aspects and eventually change, you know, our, our perceptions of lots of things. But looking at, so we looked at, you know, secondary safeties and corners and we looked at, you know, the quote-unquote edge and D-tackles and linebackers we looked into, uh, spent time with, you know, studying and sorting through and rehashing uh, a lot of position groups. So if if we're looking at the whole thing, the whole monster, the guys who, based on what you do and other things, the guys have the best chance to be very good and perhaps even great. So it sounds like number one off the bat, Miles Gaskin, and then not long thereafter, Solomon Thomas. Who else in your mind? Who are the other players, you know, preferably in order if possible, but not as they come, uh, who do show the best chance to eventually have great players, multiple all-pro, multiple, multiple, multiple all the good things. And then, you know, sort of whose class, regardless of position, but, you know, sort of looking as a whole, we talk about some of this, but we'll, you know, like I said, we'll give them the least help you know, depending upon what it was you see. Right. Well, I would say the the four guys who at least have the best chance to be really special players, you know, Solomon mm-hmm. Thomas, definitely, Christian McCaffrey, uh, Miles Garrett, and then uh, Jordan Willis. And then the guys that have a chance to be, like, Pro Bowl guys, at least, you know, it'd be guys like Deshaun Watson, uh, Chris Godwin, Curtis Samuel, uh, Taylor Mouton, Dante Foreman, uh, Zay Jones, Forrest Lamp, you know, guys like that. Xavier Woods, Shelby Woozy. He's actually a bunch of guys. It's, it's Tyus Bowser, uh, Kevin King, uh, Joe Mixon, Mitch Trubisky, John Ross, you know, guys like that. Right. Got so. Did you already do your metric all rookie team or projected all rookie? I haven't done that yet. Um, right now, I've been doing a lot of 2018 stuff, actually. Um, data for 2018. But yeah, I haven't really got into that yet. I'm working on it, though. Um, but yeah. Okay. And you know, tell us about who some of your favorite drafts and favorite players were. And I've told you about some of mine. And like I said, I started to say saying least favorite, but once again, like I said, those that may have received a lot of resources, but in my mind hadn't given, you know, quite enough uh, return on that. But that's, and of course, we're now in a very crowded space for those who want to do draft guys and everybody and their mom is doing one. But getting back to 2017. So people love the tight end class. Anybody who wanted a tight end, get one. And from what you've told me, a good part of them, a good number of them were at least Pro Bowl level productive. And it seems like pretty much all of them seem to have tested well. I mean, were there, were there any of the tight ends that tested in a way, whether it be production or, or physical testing, that makes you think that they don't have a chance to be, you know, to be good pros? 
Huh. Um, right. Uh, honestly, not, none of the tight ends really tested to a point where, like, there's no shot with them. I would say guys like Jeremy Sprinkle and uh, Jordan Leggett were tight ends that had more in common with the tight ends of the past that we've had that were drafted fairly, like, day two sort of area. Um, but this class just had a lot of tight ends that hit the production marks they needed to hit on top of hitting really good athletic markers. Um, so there, there was easily like four tight ends around there that had at least potential to be pro bowl tight ends. There wasn't any all pro tight ends though, but there were a lot of guys who had a very good shot at becoming potential pro bowl guys in this class. Okay. So let's look at a couple more things. Many people have already flipped the face, in, as you know. <laughs> 2018, starting to already seize the minds of Brad Twitter, as Brad Twitter tries to show it's not a seasonal activity, it's a year-round activity. Based on the work you do, who are some of the players that we can expect to continue to be, I guess, to well, be hopefully the improvement, but the ones that show the the trend data, you know, going from whenever they first began starting up through this will well, mostly the last year, though, some will say. But what does that look like in terms of sort of the paid inspector or whatever? I mean, like, who who did you see showed you things that makes you think they'll show more things and that they'll be even better? I guess is what I'm driving at for 2018. Oh, for 2018? Right, because I mean, I can't, I can't think of anything we haven't covered for 2017, unless you can think of something I missed. I can't think of anything else, honestly. Um, yes, same here. So yeah, we can turn the page. Let's sneak in a little bit of 2018 before we draft. Before we draft. Before, okay. Before, before we. we... <laughs> <laughs> right. Well. You ready for the draft already? Well. Somewhat, yeah. There he is, Isaiah. Been on in the last 20 minutes. Good to have you, Isaac. <laughs> but yes, back to my question. Um, based on the the trend data, the things that you looked, obviously we don't have any physical tests. Right. There's always lots of rumors and innuendos. This guy's going to run four two five, and you know. Right. Once again, yeah. I apologize. My apologies to the John Ross camp when I poo pooed the four two five about it a little over a year ago uh, from spring testing. So congratulations, you guys were right. I was wrong. But continue. Well, when it comes to quarterbacks, I know we say this every year. Well, the quarterback class is going to be better this year. <laughs> we do literally say this every year. But from a data perspective, yeah. there's actually a better quarterback class. Oh, there we because go. Because we have four. We have actually five quarterbacks in this class that hit the high school markers and the college markers are ready for at least Pro Bowl to All-Pro uh, quarterbacks. Sam Darnold's one of those guys. Josh Rosen's one of those guys. Jake Browning's one of those guys. Mason Rudolph's one of those guys. And Baker Mayfield's one of those guys. Really? Yeah. So, five of those guys. Yeah, we have five guys. This last draft class we had, Bill, just for perspective, we only had... Uh, one and a half guys, because Mitch Trubisky didn't really hit the Pro Bowl high school level. He was one point away 
So I just gave it to him for Bears fans. But <laughs> you know, we only had. We don't need your pity. <laughs> just to give them some hope, I just gave it to them, you know, uh, uh, basically. But, yeah, we, we only had two quarterbacks in this class who hit the high school marks and the college marks. That was Deshaun Watson and Mitch Trubisky. This class, we have five guys, you know. So things are already looking up. And then when I actually got to some of their film, like Sam Darnold, um, Sam Darnold is really good. Uh, yes, correct. So – and Baker Mayfield is underrated. And like there's there's lots of guys. Of course, Mason Rudolph, which I haven't gone back to his film yet, but the last time I saw him, he was actually pretty decent in certain ways too. So I yep. just think this is a better quarterback class, just be, from a data perspective. Like I'm not like saying it's better just because I'm, you know, saying it's better. I'm saying it's better just because the data says it's better. So right. I think there's some stuff on film that would kind of back that up as well. Right. And if indeed, I mean, once again, I, I don't want to assume development or improvement, which is one of those you know, great mistakes. I understand it's right. projection, blah, blah, blah. But when you start so like assuming sleepers. someone's going to get better. Right, right, right. So, so if you're talking sleepers, right, yep. Luke Falk would be one of those yeah. guys. Yeah. There's a lot yeah, of There's already a, a huge Luke Falk fan club right. out there. Yeah, I'm but a from a data it. perspective, he's a sleeper. You know? Right, right, right. Because I get that a lot. I get people going, he's not a sleeper, he's this. And I'm like, again, I'm talking from a from an analytics perspective, he's a sleeper, you know. Like, if you're just basing your your stuff from, from uh, analytics, he's a sleeper. Luke Falk would be that guy. Um, Trace McShorley, probably saying that wrong. McSorley. Trace McSorley. Yeah, Trace, Trace McSorley. Yeah, he, he's, he's another guy that's got a growing fan base, I've noticed. In but he year. has to do a lot better this year. His his uh, his QB stat score from last year was 67.51 out of 100. So, like, he needs a big year. But he does have the high school production. He just has to have the college production to match the high school production. So he's like a sleeper in that. If he has a big year this year, he could bump his status up. I guess, into, you know, better. If he plays better this year, he could bump his status up into that five I just mentioned. Um, Brett Riffin from Boise State is another guy that if he plays better this year, he could bump himself into that area. Kyle Allen from Houston, by way of Texas A&M, is one of those guys that could bump himself up. And then the last guy who nobody talks about is Wilson Spate from Michigan. Who also could bump himself up? But we will talk about him. But it is—it is not complimentary, right? Uh, which is weird, Bill. I don't. There's so many quarterbacks now, Bill, that like they look so much like their head coaches. Wilson State looks <laughs> like Harbaugh. Yep. Jake Browning. He doesn't exactly look like you know. <laughs> no, he just kind of looks like Chris Peterson. For those who. He I mean, I guess like I'm, probably, him, only one, like when he's I'm down, probably the only one who remembers Chris Peterson when, as a prospect, but I remember Chris Peterson as a prospect. Cal Davis, baby. Quarterback. Yeah. He was a quarterback. He was a, he was a quick-footed little – for those who want to understand what Chris Peterson was like as a quarterback prospect, he was like a poor man's Jason Garrett. Go pull up your Jason Garrett tape. and Fairly similar to that. Right. 
But like that, but that's all I would say is this is a quarterback class that has basically has five guys that hit all the marks from a data perspective, and then it has like five other guys that are really close to breaking into that area if they have a really good season. That's pretty darn good. I mean, I don't know about you. Not all these guys are going to declare, of course. Like, I don't think Jake Browning is going to declare. Um, you know, I don't think Brett Riffin is going to declare. But I do think that there's a bunch of guys that could possibly do that. And the only thing with Sam Darnold is that people complain about his, his wind. Like, he doesn't he have the most. Yeah. He doesn't have the prettiest. Bill Rivers made a pretty good career out of that wind. Yeah, but he doesn't have the prettiest mechanics ever, Bill, but he, he gets rid of the football fairly quickly despite that stuff. Yeah, Rivers doesn't so much have a wind-up. He just has a very low ball carriage, and it comes straight out from his shoulder, you know, girdle, basically. You know, the right. ball the ball never – so he, it's not even a wind-up. It's just the ball never comes up very high. He, he takes the snap. The ball comes up to about nipple level. And he releases it from about that same level, you know, boom, comes straight out from the shoulder. He's actually what's called a puncher in terms of his actual stroke, his actual passing style. He doesn't even make a full loop behind his head. So if that's a tight little little delivery, it's just low. You know, that's that's the thing. Right. It's not it's not it's not loose, it's not loopy, it's just it's just low. Rivers is all and I mean, I've been watching Philip Rivers since he was a high school prospect, you know, coming up to NC State and, you know, I've kept hoping he'd end up at you know, USC or whatever, but, but, uh, but he didn't, obviously. And Alabama, for some reason, didn't seem super excited about him because, as Jim pointed out, they're terrible evaluating quarterback, even though he's an Alabama kid. Yeah. But, I have a question for you, Jim, after you finish. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I was yeah. going to ask you, where does DeAndre Francis uh, hit the high school. Francois. Hmm? Francois. Francois. Yeah. What did he hit his marker last year with like in the high school percentile? Uh, no. Unfortunately, no. So um, where did he fall? Where was Where did he? Right, right, right. Hmm. Well, let me. I got a very big. Thing I'm working with, so let me just do <laughs> That's what she oh, said. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> DeAndre Francois. Yeah, DeAndre had a 64.69 out of 100. So he didn't quite hit the starter level high school freshman freshman he hit. Um, so and among from, NFL quarterbacks who've been in that range, what have their careers looked like? Guys who are at that 64 point. He's at 64.9. Gabbert. Oof. Uh, Drew Olson. Okay. Um, okay. Who else? Well, let me get, okay. Let me get uh, Marquise Williams. Uh, Wes Lunt. Oh, okay. Jake Locker. Uh, Jordan Rogers. Okay. You remember him? Uh, I remember him quite well. Uh, he was a bachelor contestant, if I remember. <laughs> I think amongst other things. I thought he was the right. bachelor. Can I say that I again? <laughs> I thought he was the bachelor. I don't know. I don't pay attention. Yeah, that's it. Bachelor contestant. Whatever. Yeah, he's in the back. That's what it is. I guess not a contestant. I don't, I'm not that familiar with the the show's actual format. I'll admit it. I've never really seen an episode. 
But yes, he was on The Bachelor. Yes, that. Uh, I guess essentially the quarterback. You date you date a bunch of people, and then uh, they they there's like uh, a bunch of like um, oh cat fights or whatever. Um, but just a oh. weird sort of thing. It's a reality TV show. But yeah, uh, Sean Bill Foley. That's his favorite show. Yeah, well, like Sean Rimfrey. <laughs> I am a Sean Winfrey guy, so I'll admit that. I've always been one of those guys who sort of held that little little teeny tiny, you know, soft spot in my heart for Sean Winfrey. But, you know, obviously he hasn't exactly toyed up thus far, at least, in his NFL career. Oh, and there's also uh, David Ash. Ooh, who's that guy? Uh, <laughs> okay. Nick Marshall. Jeff Driscoll. Oh. Wow, cool. yeah. uh, Joe Southwick, no? Travis no. Wilson, Ben Chappelle, uh, Blaine Gabbert. He's not as bad as Blaine Gabbert. No. Davis Webb no. actually has more things to come with Blaine Gabbert from high school production. <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> but Francois okay. just doesn't, he doesn't quite hit the... You know, James Winston level or any of those other kind of levels. That no, no, he does not. And it's not his fault. It's unfair. Not fair, but you know, it's just, that's just, it is what it is with DeAndre Francois. So. Interesting. Interesting. Tough guy. So, tough. Good God, is he tough? <laughs> Yeah, he's tough as boot leather. It's like Tyler Wilson all over again, kind of. Yeah. Oh, there's a guy a lot of people missed on. Yeah. I was not one of the people in the Tyler Wilson camp, but I do remember lots of people, including some quote-unquote QB guru types who really liked him. Yeah. Yeah, so any any other quarterbacks, Isaiah? Josh Allen. Oh, oh Josh here, Allen um, is special case. He's special. Comes. I mean, that's a fun with Josh, Well, I mean, with Josh Allen, it's just. I mean, we're we're talking fifty-one out of a hundred in terms of high school production. Ooh. But what makes it worse is his college production is twenty-five point nine one out of a hundred, which since. The 1958 NFL draft class, there's never been a long-term starter with that college production. He could be better this year, though. Uh, just to put this into perspective, he gets compared to Brett Favre. But Brett Favre had a 55 college production score. Josh Allen has a 25.91 college production score. So he's actually worse Yikes. than Brett Favre. Significantly. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize it was that far apart. Well, that comparison kind of falls apart. He's got arms. How's, how's he, right. How's he compared to, since we're talking about guys have, you know, to whom he gets compared, how does he stack up against, say, Jake Cutler? Well, Jake Cutler was about 72 in college. And so, what was his high school numbers back in better. Santa Claus, Indiana? Don't quite have his numbers yet. I'm working on it. Oh, but okay. Still, you know. I'm working. There's a lot of high school guys. Past 2007, 
well, basically the Matt Ryan draft, like par- parts of 2007 and then most of 2008, most of that draft, and then some guys sprinkled in here or there, unfortunately, because I think it's really hard to get high school data. But for the most part, Cutler just had better college uh, production. Like the issue with Josh Allen is not only was his high school data so low, his college data is so bad, you know. Right. It's like it's like that combination is just not good. And he played in the Mountain <laughs> West Conference too. <laughs> and the only thing that he has positive wise is yards per attempt. But yes. And I'm just I'm I'm calling Ben Albright on this because Ben Albright was like, well, yards per attempt is much more important now, Jim. You know, and I actually ran the numbers and. Success outcomes are much higher with touchdown and interception ratio and completion percentage than yards per attempt. And actually, the significance decreased with yards per attempt in the last 20 years versus the entire existence of the data set, meaning that the the importance of yards per attempt has gone significantly down compared to yard compared to touchdown and interception ratio and completion percentage, which makes sense because offenses are now more about getting rid of the football quick and stuff like that versus making big plays right. down the field. Right. There's only a handful of teams that really chuck it down the field, but that's something they right. do do at Wyoming, or at least did last year. Yeah, but again, you have a quarterback who excels in things that would have been really cool 50 years ago. Yes. I wonder how, because I mean, we don't have name as Actually, have you done show names? I got to see how he went back. Yeah, how would he stack uh, up against a guy like Namath? Well, Namath was actually he had a uh, he actually had a seventy-six college score. Oh wow! Okay, he got blown out of the water by Joe Namath. Okay, yeah, never mind. And And I'm assuming you don't have Namath high school stuff because it's so far back. I don't have Namath high school, so it's way too far back. (laughs) But yeah, I mean. College quarterbacks that far. That, that's You'd have to what. go to the newspaper uh, more. Do a whole bunch of stuff. And go I'd through there. Go talk to Joe Namath. I'd have to like interview Joe Namath and be like, "You want to learn? You know, like you want to create history? Or, you know." Um, but um, yeah, it's it's just not there. The comparison's not there. I don't know what to say. And there's also people going, well, I looked at Joe Namath's numbers. Again, th- these are numbers that are based on a 10-year average for each quarterback performance. So mm-hmm. it's basically every performance, like say 2016, is compared to all the quarterback performances since the 2007. Like basically a 10-year sample. So, so like mm-hmm. that performance, a 10-year sample. And the reason I did that is because, as you know, Bill, you know, the, the numbers have changed drastically from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, even the 90s to now. You know, the average right. keep going up in terms of touchdown and saturation, in terms of completion percentage. But with the 10-year sample, you're able to compare what they were to their peers in that era so that I can compare Warren Moon. Because, like, if you look at Warren Moon's stats right now in college, you'd go, oh, that's terrible. But his stats actually were 97 percentile. Uh, in terms of his uh, college at, at Washington, you know, so basically he had a 97 plus complete QB stat score back in the 70s. If you looked at the numbers now, you go, oh, he was terrible, but he really wasn't compared to his peers. And he was actually significantly above that, basically Peyton Manning level uh, college performance for Warren Moon. 
but but this is just kind of a good way to kind of gauge who is above average, who is not, and you kind of see what the trends are in terms of the division. And at least when it comes to Josh Allen, again, it's not looking too good for Josh Allen. So high school stuff doesn't hit, and then the college stuff is significantly below average. Yeah, I It'll, the battle that'll be maybe not the biggest battle, but it'll be one of the biggest battles for 2018. I'm I feel pretty confident. And who knows? Maybe it'll shock us all and come back to school and you know improve. But I have a feeling that's so. not how it'll play out. I mean, I, I'd like yeah, to be wrong. <laughs> well, and then the second guy, Bill, is Lamar Jackson. Oh, yeah, the other firestorm. Yeah, so boy. I haven't got any. Move him to wide receiver. He was one of my top five most overrated quarterbacks. Uh, I haven't got much hate from it yet because people haven't seen it, apparently. But based on his high school production, he was 28.71 out of 100. Ouch. With his high school production score. And as much as they call him a dual threat, he really was just a single threat. (laughs) Get it? He really wasn't a passenger. He's more of a runner. And then when it comes to his college production, his best year was last year where he only had 48.07 out of 100 in terms of college efficiency. And he's another guy that his yards per attempt and his adjusted yards per attempt are really high. But, again, those are numbers that were much more important like 50 years ago than now. The things that actually matter now, like touchdown and saturation, completion percentage, he just doesn't hit those marks. That he needs to hit. So he's not even average in terms of his uh, college production. So he's another guy. And when it comes to Michael Vick, because we were going, well, Michael Vick, Michael Vick had a 76 college production score in terms of as a passer, whereas Lamar Jackson is a 48.07. You can't compare Michael Vick to Lamar Jackson as passers either, because Michael Vick was just a much better passer overall than Lamar Jackson. How's he compared to Pat White? Oh, sorry, Bill, I can't. You're kind of breaking up. Yeah, I can't hear it either. Oh, I was saying, I don't know if you had reached out to Mintzville High School, but I may actually have some Michael Vick's high school stuff now I think about it. I may have to do some digging in some boxes, but... If you if you are looking for for Michael Vick's high school stuff, I I'm pretty sure it shouldn't be super hard to find. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, but based on the college stuff, it's pretty clear that Michael Vick was a better college player. Yes. Oh. He was an almost singular. He was an almost singular college player. Uh, that was another guy. I mean, obviously, I understand why he came out, but I wish he could stay at least one more year. Uh, one is because you know I think. Might have done some ridiculous things for Virginia Tech if he had one more year with him, but but two, uh, you know, he had some maturity stuff to work on, as you know later everyone found out. But that being said, people don't re. Maybe it's an age thing. They don't remember just how ridiculous Michael Vick was. I mean, no offense to Lamar Jackson, but he's not as strong. He's not as fast, no matter what, what people... He's not as quick, and his arm is nowhere near as strong as Michael Vick was. But people Michael keep just loving him. They keep, but people keep 
the people keep loving He's not even as good as Teddy Bridgewater in terms of passing vision. Like, I just don't get it, Bill. Like, Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen are two quarterbacks that, as passers, it just isn't getting it done when it comes to data perspective, you know. Right. So I do understand that, that Lamar Jackson improved, because that's the thing. Lamar Jackson did improve as a passer, but he went from, like, his freshman season where he was a 26 overall passer to a 48 overall passer, which you think is, yeah, it's progress, but like 48 overall still not getting it done, you know what I'm saying, as, as, a, as a passer in terms of efficiency as a passer. And, yes, he can make those deep throws down the field, and his yards per attempt are really, really high. But, again, those are, those are numbers that just don't matter as much. Efficiency and not turning the football over are things that are much more important now than they were 50 years ago. And he just doesn't right. hit any of the marks he needs to hit in terms of those marks. And I don't know how to get people to understand that. It's like with Josh Allen. Like, Josh Allen, is when he gets the throwing balls down the field, yeah, it's, it's cool, it's amazing, but that type of stuff just isn't as important as efficiency and not turning the football over. You know, well, you lose the football the NFL, games. Well, because even at the NFL level, you're not throwing it 30, 40, 25, 50 yards on the field very often. That's something that you might do five or six times in the entire game. Right. Well, exactly. But that's, I mean, I try to explain to people that, the, like, the reason why touch and interception ratio and completion percentage are so important is that, you know, completion percentage, percentage speaks to your ability to keep, the, you know, the, the chains moving, you know, um, and being efficient. And then touch and interception ratio is just how often you turn the football over. Because I know it, it sounds silly to say, because it, it's like common knowledge, is that the more times you turn the football over, the less likely you are to win football games. Um, I've actually done data on this, but it's pretty clear that the more times you turn the football over, whether it's fumbles or interceptions, the more likely you are to lose football games. And when you have two quarterbacks who just fail when it comes to not turning the football over, in Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen as passers, it just, it just doesn't really get it done. So those are like the two guys in this quarterback class that there's going to be a lot of debates about, but that's from a data perspective, spoiler alert, it's not going to work out. So it, it would be unprecedented you know, at the very least, it would be unprecedented for either one right. of these guys to become long-term successful quarterback. And, and just so you know, Jim, that's the other main source of hate. Um, is the spoilers. People don't like their have their studies <laughs> spoiled. For them. They, don't want, they don't want you to tell them how it is. They don't want to know that Josh Allen is seeing dead people or whatever. They they or they or they, they want to find out themselves. That's another reason that they get upset with you. You tell them how it's going to end. I guess, but I just and plus the other thing too is like Sam Darnold does all the things that Josh Allen does but he does true. it much more efficiently. Also true. He's not throwing as many yellow balls either. Because no. no. I've, no, I've certainly seen Darnold, you know, throw some yellow balls at times. But Yeah, he's thrown, he's thrown a few, yeah. But it's not to the level of Josh Allen, you know, where... No, no you get a couple per <sighs> game with Josh Allen. And I just don't understand why people can't look at that 
it's almost like I wonder how people even evaluate the quarterback position because a lot of a lot of the way I evaluate the quarterback position is limiting risk. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. getting checked down, you know, not throwing in the triple coverage. You know, like not turning the football. You know, like different stuff like that. On top of arm talent, like sure, you need to have a quarterback that can hit multiple throws deep, you know, intermediate sort of areas. But you also need to make sure that they're not losing your football games as well. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I that those are the only. I mean, those are the only two quarterbacks that at least stick out the most as as uh, you know red herrings or whatever. I guess right firestorms um, of controversy, et cetera. Yeah. Except I haven't got much hate on them yet, again because nobody, nobody reads much. Yeah, but um, but yeah, well, some people agree, but I think they just agree because you know I said a bunch of stuff. But yeah, I mean, the quarterback class is just going to be better from a data perspective. They could all suck. I mean, all the guys I mentioned, Sam Darnold, could suck. Josh Rosen, maybe sucks. Jake Browning, yeah, probably sucks too. Mason Rudolph, maybe. Baker Mayfield, he could suck as well. But at the very least, from a data perspective, but he have five quarterbacks who hit all the marks you need to hit in terms of Pro Bowl potential. That's that's a good sign, I guess, is all I'm trying to say. Because you know, one out of five of those guys may be the he may be the guy, right? Or you could have three out of five. Like five out of five is like wishful thinking, but it's a good thing we have five who at least hit all the marks you need to hit. That is a good thing. I mean, in terms of. What you're describing, how it plays out. When's the last, I have, I'm sorry, when's the last year we had five guys reach the percentile for that? Well, last year marks. we only had two. We only had two, two. We only had, we had one and a half guys last year who hit all the marks. When's and the last year, Deshaun, the year before that? Yeah, okay. Oh, the year yeah. before that? Um, was it 2015? Yeah, 2015. Uh, with Bridgewater and Carr, I believe. Oh, that was 2014. Yeah, that was Mariota and Winston, my bad. Oh, well, yeah, Mariota and Winston hit both high school and uh, college markers. What? Any other guys from that draft class who hit both? Oh, well, that was it. That was just Mariota and, uh, and Winston. Oh, was the only two that hit the – okay, but okay. Yeah. Okay, so – there haven't been many years when it's been more than two. Is that what you're saying? Not normally, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't actually gone back to look at each draft class individually, which is what I was working on. But um, but the la- like, and also keep in mind that some of these guys may not declare early. You know, Tim Darnold might stay in school another year. Jake Browning might stay. I honestly think Jake Browning's going to stay in school another year. You, you know what I'm saying? So. Um, that'll definitely affect things. But this is very, I would say just from seeing it initially, it is unusual that you would have five quarterbacks that are draft eligible that hit all the markers they need to hit already. Like it's very unusual, to say the least. Okay. Got it. You know, so you have slightly higher hopes for next year than for the last year. It's higher hopes. I mean, and, and again, from a film perspective, um, they all got talent. I mean, Sam Darnold, I know people keep talking about his mechanics, but, and yeah, his mechanics are a little weird, but he's able to get rid of the football fairly quickly. 
in situations that are like when people talk about mechanics, like they're talking about mechanics in the sense of not being able to get rid of the football in time to, you know, gets pressure, but that was never a problem with Darnold on film. Right. Like he would face pressure in his face and he's able to get rid of the football fairly quickly and accurately despite his mechanics, mechanic issues. So, um, you know, I don't know. It's like that or Baker Mayfield, like Baker Mayfield, like the one thing I really like Baker Mayfield Bill is just how catchable his footballs are. Like yeah. whether it's short passes, intermediate passes, or even deep passes, he throws a very catchable football. You can. I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go Drew Brees, um, but I could see him having a better than Colt McCoy and maybe even better than Chase Daniel kind of NFL career. <laughs> Justin Garmel says. He's going to have a, a maybe even starter in the Canadian League. He's not going to be an NFL quarterback. Well, well, it's very possible not, not because the, the, the NFL, possible, yeah, but, the NFL is you know the NFL. I mean, the one thing right, I do know Rakeem is Johnny Manziel stuck in the CFL, but it's not because he's not good enough. It's because they never gave him a chance. Yeah, they never gave him a chance. But Adam, I mean, maybe. I mean, Mayfield's going to get the Johnny Manziel treatment, but he's not exactly as risky as Johnny Manziel. He does – there's some games, like the Baylor game in particular, Bill. There was a couple throws in there. I was like, what are you doing? But yep. other than that game, he was pretty uh, conservative for the most part. But he has been in some games where he just kind of Manzelled it up, but it isn't that bad. Right. He's not a YOLO ball Right. Yeah, it was a much more football than uh, than uh, than Manziel too. So I don't know. He's I'm more accurate. Torn. Hey. Yeah, I'm very torn with Mayfield because even like the one-handed catches. You know, Mixon had the one-handed catches, which were great. But a lot of the reasons why he's able to make those one-handed catches is because just how catchable the football is. So I don't know. It, it was very. I was very surprised at Baker Mayfield's film. I'll just say that much. Compared to what I remember seeing him as a Texas Tech to now, he's a totally different quarterback now. So, yeah. there you he's go. Improved. Development. He's improved. Right. It does happen. Not everybody does it, but it does happen. And that's why we keep watching. That's why you don't form an opinion of a player and then just freeze your opinion, you know, in time and ignore what is continuing to happen around you. But the thing that obviously – that People have two well, two issues. One, of course, is the offense uh, that he's in at Oklahoma. And then, I mean, who knows exactly where he'll measure when it all comes down to it. But he's another guy who could easily lose the way in, in terms, at least in terms of height. Uh, now, a lot of people pointed to his, uh, you know, his arrest report or whatever and said, oh, hey, you know, <laughs> stock up, stock up. Uh, because they supposedly had measured him at six feet tall, I believe, or something like that, or maybe a little above six feet. So we'll see when he's in an actual. Well, people still care, Jeff. I mean, I know, but <laughs> I've I've done data. I mean, I've done I've done so much data at the position that what's clear to me is height really doesn't matter. You know, you'll have the same. But, you'll find the same amount of all pro players. You told me at one point that this weak spot or whatever was six foot five or something. I did say that, but that was based on twenty years worth of data. When you extend it out, 
more, when you extend the net out more, mm-hmm. and you actually can, when you, the thing is, is like six foot five, it's also about the population. So like, there's more six foot five quarterbacks than there are five eleven quarterbacks. Just surprising, but not not that surprising. But like when you actually look at a per height basis, you'll find the same concentration of special players at any height class at the quarterback position. So it's really just a matter of population. Like certainly you'll have more quarterbacks that are six foot three or six foot four or six foot five, or at least you'll have like more special quarterbacks that are over six foot two, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But that's really just because the population is over six foot two. If you actually look at each height individually in terms of the, all the players and their heights, the concentration is the same. Like you'll find the same amount of special quarterbacks at any height class, the same concentration percentage. So height really doesn't matter. You know, if you have the indicators, like Russell Wilson, right? Russell Wilson was a guy who had the high school indicators. He had the college indicators. He just was 5'11". You know, so boom. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Like, Baker Mayfield just seems like another one of those guys. I'm not saying that he's a Russell Wilson, but based on his high school production and his college production so far, he hit all the marks you're looking for in terms of special, potentially a potential special quarterback. So, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. My mind is hurting. And if he's six foot, oh, well. You know? Right. Right. No, I'm with I'm you. Not, I mean, I'm, I've always supported the, you know, as you know, I've always kind of been down for the shorter players. It's just that all so often people are, you know, refuse to buy into them. You get to give them a shot, you know. But the But the biggest thing with Mayfield – and now we're getting into the whole the heart and the drive and stuff. It's just that Baker Mayfield, his entire career has been someone who succeeded despite people saying that he would never make it. You know, that is true. He had a he had a walk on at Texas Tech. He had a walk on at Oklahoma. Do you know the the cojones it takes still for a guy to walk on at Oklahoma after what Trevor Knight did and all that other kind of stuff? You know, like. Like Trevor Knight shows up and he has that really big game and it's like Trevor Knight fever and you walk onto a program like that and you take the job anyways, you know, right. like that takes a lot of cojones, man. So <laughs> say what you say what you will about Mayfield. I mean, I'm just like he's a guy who's said his entire life that he, he can't make it, but based on this production and based on the stuff I've seen on film of him, I just I just think this is a guy that if he drops because he's six foot, there could be some really cool things with him. So especially in terms of deep accuracy, like that was a big thing too. Was just his ability to, I know it's wide open wide receivers, but right. putting it right where he needed to put it, you know, it wasn't like True. his wide receivers having to make crazy adjustments and stuff. He's putting it right on the money, you know, so in terms of accuracy. So I was, I was very surprised by that. Right. No, I'm with you. I mean, I've, the things I've liked about him, I mean, there is the, the moxie. He's a guy that apparently does have a high level of leadership, physical and mental toughness. Uh, the offenses he's been in is one that people don't tend to respect, but he's learned them quickly. I mean, though they're very similar, there are some differences. My understanding is that he adapted very quickly to 
the differences of the word. They were huge differences between Texas Tech and Oklahoma's offense in terms of the nomenclature and the running game particularly. Uh, there's much more going on in the running game in Oklahoma than there was at Texas Tech where they have very few running game, running plays and the running plays are pretty simplistic. But more stuff going on there and a little bit more for him to do with the line of scrimmage and things like that. Not a lot, but a little bit more at Oklahoma. But my understanding is he picks it up very, very quickly. Hard worker, you know, a guy that, you know, grinds it out, puts in hours. I mean, there's lots of like. And whether or not he becomes a long-term starter in the NFL, I feel very strongly that, the, you know, worst-case scenario is going to be a number two for, well, almost as long as he wants to do it. And I think in the right situation, he could maybe be a, I don't know about a long-term starter, but I think he's like start, 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 maybe in spots, spots or, you know, be a quote-unquote bridge or whatever, you know, the whatever you want to term you want to use, a guy who starts for a year or two, I can certainly see him doing that. And he might, like I said, he might prove me wrong. He might well outproduce. I mean, I've he's grown on me a little bit more and more. I mean, I, when I first saw him at Texas Tech, I was like, huh. You know, once again, the whole very flawed star system because everywhere he's gone, the quarterbacks that he's knocked off have been guys that had a lot more stars involved in their uh, recruitment situation than he had. So, you know, I've he should have a lot more stars. I mean, yes. If we keep we keep coming back to this, and I do understand there's a difference between the NFL and college, but when you have a quarterback that in high school scored a 92.41 college production, well, high school production score, it doesn't matter how tall he is or whatever the other stuff is, and he's also against Texas competition, you know, championships yes. in Texas, yes. you know, right. competition, and you poo-poo that because he's short. Yes. I mean, what do you want? Do you want a tall, good-looking quarterback that can't throw the football that well, or do you want a guy that can actually win you football games and be an efficient quarterback? Because well, here, well, here's what kills me: when you're going after the David Ashes of the world, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you can't tell me <laughs> that that you don't have space in your program for Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield. I mean, it just I. And again, it's another thing because I, I I recently did Elite Eleven, you know, because the Elite Eleven here, but and there's more than eleven players, which is kind of dumb. Oh, but uh, <laughs> sorry, but I mean it's called the Elite Eleven, but there's there there is an elite. There's not eleven players there anymore. There's more than it. Kind of, it's like the Big Ten, right? Yeah. Big Twelve. There's just not twelve of them. So again, football and numbers, right? See, football doesn't <sighs> like numbers. But uh, being consistent. Exactly. But, but yeah, when I was looking at that, I'm like, there was only like seven quarterbacks that, if you're talking about NFL potential, that hit NFL potential, and then the rest of them were like significantly below average, you know, like way, 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 like Lamar Jackson level below average, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, like, it's just it's funny to me that the high school – hasn't caught up, I guess. I mean, they're doing sparky stuff, but again, sparky stuff is like what you just talked about. It's simplistic to a fault, you know? Like, you're not yes. learning anything from spark. You're just going, oh, well, these are the most athletic guys because there you go. Like, you're not learning anything from <laughs> spark. You know, other than yeah. people going, say, 
spark doesn't always work. Look at this guy. Like that's really all you're learning. So right. Well, as we said before, the issue with spark is it's so easy to skew it by having an amazing score in one thing, and you can just be below average in everything else and still have a good spark score. Yeah. On top of some of the weird things they do too, like the power ball. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Stuff like right. that. She's like, what's the applicability? That's how we get into a lot of that stuff. Like, what's the applicability on the football field? You know, we got to get, okay. But I'm just, just saying, what's the, pra- what's the actual data basis for as long as, you know. But, but yeah, I mean, I just I just think high school football is just way fly. It, it just amazes me that we have these big-time programs that chase after these guys that have, like, 11 production scores in, in, in college in high school, you know, right. and then they're, and then they're, or like Jeff Driscoll, even, you know, Jeff Driscoll based in his high school production score is someone that he should have expected to become maybe an average starter at the college level. And yet, you know, he ended up becoming average starter, you know, when he went to Louisiana tech, but the hype with him going in was that this is the next Tim Tebow, you know, like this is the, you know what I'm saying? So, which right. he wasn't that it Tim Tebow was a much more productive player in high school than him. What was that, Isaiah? I'm like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You're not the next Tim Tebow. Well, Tim Tebow oh, was sure. a highly productive college quarterback. I mean, sure, you know, sure. Right. Like, and sure, you could talk about NFL, you know, which I get, but I'm just saying if you – because, again, the applicability of high school production isn't just at the NFL level. It's at the college level, you know. Like, Tim Tebow definitely is an NFL quarterback, but at the college level, he was a 90-plus producer, you know, went right. to championships, won championships. So, you know, Greg McElroy, right? You know, he's not exactly amazing, but he definitely has some rings on him, you know, in terms of NFL play versus college play. But, yeah, I just – that's the only thing that bones me out about Bainfield and other guys is just, you know, you – data can help you out. They can find guys. Like, I mean, because Mayfield's just sitting there, you know? He has to walk on to places, and yet the data should have been obvious that he, that you should have been going after this guy, you know? Right. Pretty clearly. From the get-go, you already should have – you should have been a four-star, five-star guy from the get-go, based on his data. That makes sense. And, yes, uh, Tim Tebow did have a, a, you know, career that, from what I'm understanding, was very impressive at Nice High School. I don't know if you have you looked at his high school data already, Joe. Oh yeah. Okay, so where did he fall in terms of high school production? Well, yeah, for him in terms of high school, uh, he was a 95.59 guy hmm. at uh, at Nice. Okay. Yeah. Right. And his college production score was ninety six point eight. Oh wow. So you know, his high school stuff pretty much met the college stuff. It doesn't always work. I mean it doesn't always translate, but the patterns are, you know, undeniable, I guess. You know, in terms of like if a guy's really good in high school, he's most likely gonna be really good in college. And then of course vice versa the NFL if they have all the sort of traits for that too. Huh. Any other questions about that or anything else, Isaiah? No. Okay. 
So on the defensive side of the ball, 2018 has guys like Porter Gustin in it. Um, there's, I guess, Mark Marquise Haynes, uh, the another you know, mi- miniature fast rusher. But I'll ask you first, Jim. Who are some of the guys you're excited about most? You know, the guys you're most looking forward to since you may have last seen them at some point last season. Yeah. Who are some of the people you expect to move up? And then are there any players I, I doubt at this point there are any, but just in case, if there's any players you thought perhaps should even move down based on what you've seen. But I'll start with you, Jim. Right. What, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, in terms of defense, I mean, linebackers, I do like the linebacker class a little bit more. Uh, Malik Jefferson needs to take a bump up in production, but there's no denying he's a very interesting athlete, you know. Um, but he just needs to be a much more productive player. Uh, Micah Kaiser from Virginia, I think, is a pretty fun linebacker to watch. Jordan Jones. And one guy that was kind of my favorite was Jack Cicci from Wisconsin. Because everybody was talking about Reuben Foster like crazy. And I was watching Jack Cicci's film, and I'm like, he does pretty much the same thing, guys. You know, like, there's a lot of things he does. He's a much more productive player, though. But he was actually a pretty good blitzer. Like, basically, when people were talking about him being, you know, Foster being like an every-down linebacker, he can do everything. I was watching Cicci on film, like, he can do pretty much everything, too. You know, in terms of, you know, rushing the passer. Uh, pass coverage, everything. So he was a pretty utilitarian kind of, you know, guy, if you will. Um, pass rushers, you know, yeah. I, I mean, definitely Marquise Haynes is definitely one of those uh, players that's kind of like that. Arden Key, but I don't really know what's up with Arden Key. There was, like, talk about him leaving the team or something like that. There was, like, rumors about um, – him possibly leaving the football program or something like that. So, but yeah, there's, but he is definitely an impressive athlete. Bradley Chubb, of course, from North Carolina State is a player that I'm a pretty big fan of. Uh, well, Harold Landry, although I think Harold Landry is a little too overhyped because there's been like talk of him being like a first grounder and stuff like that, which I don't really think he's that, but, um, but he definitely is a, a productive player. Of course, Juke at GF4 is also kind of fun. Uh, defensive tackle-wise, I mean, Andrew Brown from Virginia, I think, is kind of an underrated guy. Uh, Harrison Phillips from Stanford is a guy I know I got some, some hate from from another <laughs> show. But uh, he's a pretty decent nose tackle uh, overall. But I think those would be kind of guys. And then safety like Nika Fitzpatrick and Derwin James or other sort of uh, – players as well. They're pretty interesting. So, you are looking forward to, it sounds like, excited at least, maybe at least a little, you know, tempered excitement about the quarterback class. What other classes stand out to you and why, Jim? Coming, I mean, what other groups in that class stood out to you and why? Oh, uh, well, yeah, the quarterback class, the running back class, I think it's really fun. It's basically like the one thing about the running back class is you have, of course, Darius Guys, Sha- uh, Saquon Barkley, 
uh, Nick Chubb and Royce Freeman, but they're very similar backs in terms of build and shape. And like, you know, there's, there's lots of similarities in terms of like size profile and stuff like that. Um, but I do think that the running back class is a lot better than people give it credit for. Uh, the wide receiver class, I think it's fun with guys like Cortland Sutton and Richie James and James Washington. Uh, those are kind of fun players. Tight end class is not so much. I think the tight end class is not going to be like this tight end class, the last one. But uh, I, but there are there's, you know, they'll have to get some guys to break out in the tight end class to say the least. Uh, and then the cornerback class is kind of, um, you know, but. I am pretty excited about the running back class and the uh, and the linebacker slash defensive tackle class. Okay. It's hard to predict, you know, things like surprise eight nine months out. But are there any things that you think might have a possibility? You can name one than what. It might have possibly become surprise things that emerge later. Right. Um, I mean, Kalen Balaj, I mean, he may not be a surprise. I don't know. Like, there's people who have Kalen Balaj as a top five pick or a top five player in this position. He's not that, but he is a very talented player. It's just a matter of him becoming a much more productive player, which I think might happen this year. But he might be kind of a surprise guy. Uh, and again, like the defensive tackles I mentioned, Harrison Phillips and Andrew Brown are guys that I think might surprise people because people just don't watch film. So, but when they do, they'll they'll know what I'm talking about with Harrison Phillips and uh, <laughs> and uh, and Nate Hoff too from uh, Indiana. You know, is also a, a pretty interesting defensive tackle too. He's a big guy too, Bill. I don't know how big oh. he is. He's big. And uh, he gave a what for? Pat Elfline did not like Nate Hoff. I'll just say that. Much. So. <laughs> Ohio State's offensive line was just like, I don't know what to do with this Nate Hoff. It was like that, man. Uh, so I, I would definitely check him out at Indiana, too. He's a fairly big guy. I don't know how big he is. He's at least 300 pounds, but he looks a little bit bigger than that. But he's a pretty, he's a pretty big, pretty big guy who can, uh, who can move fairly well. Wow. Okay. Um, anything else like running backs, tight ends, wide receivers, even defensive players that something's happened, being you caught your eye, being different, being moved, used differently, or changes in responsibilities and things like that from any of them? Right. Uh, well, Jalen Dunlap, too, from Illinois, I think is a fun zone corner. And then the other cornerback that I remember actually liking a bunch was the one from Tulane. I think Perry Nickerson was his name, but he was kind of a fun corner to, to uh, watch at Tulane. Okay. Uh, any other follow-up questions you might have, Isaiah? No. Okay. Then my last question will be on the defensive side of the ball. Who, at least thus far, based on the work you do, Jim, has the most arrows pointing in the right direction amongst the defenders? Oh, defenders. Um, hmm. 
Well, lots of, I mean, the linebackers, you know, Micah Kaiser, Jack C.T., and Jordan Jones are guys from a, from a solo tackle marks your perspective, have all the stuff that you're, that you're looking for. Uh, Arden Key is one of those guys who has all the stuff. Harold Landry has all the sort of stuff. Um, Porter Gustin does too. Although, I don't know, Bill. I've seen a lot of Porter Gustin tape. I think he's solid, but he—he's, you know, we we gave a lot of, you know, like we we buried Hunter Dimmick at Utah, but I don't really see a big difference between Porter Gustin and Hunter Dimmick as far as athletes go. Um, so I don't know, but there's there's been some hype with Porter Gustin, but I just I don't know, I just don't really get it that much. But Brad, Bradley Chubb is another one of those guys who's kind of like that. Um, Harrison Phillips, like I said, Andrew Brown, uh, Ed Oliver. He's not eligible this year, though, but Ed Oliver. I mean, Ed Oliver is basically the best because of tackle in college football. So, and I don't think I'm – I don't think eyebrows should be raised over that, but he's definitely that guy as well, even though he's not, he's not direct eligible, but he is that guy in terms of production. That's it. Cool. So, sounds like, for the most part, the strengths are a little different from what we want to get a lot to change, but from thus far, it sounds like the strengths are different between the two years. Is that be fair to say? Somewhat. I mean, the quarterback class is going to be stronger. Uh, the running back class might be equal. Like, I'm not – like, Darius Geis and Barkley are fairly talented guys, and Royce Freeman is a fairly talented player as well, um, as Nick Chubb, too, who just has a really bad injury history. But Tony Mitchell. on top of sleeper guys, too. What was that, Isaiah? Sonny Mitchell. Sonny Mitchell? Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, the wide receiver class, I think, is going to be treated the same. Although, the one thing that's weird about this wide receiver class, Bill, or going into it, is there are people that have like Paris Campbell as a top five wide receiver right now who only had 126 yards last year. And he's considered a day two pick. I don't know. I just can't get behind that. Um, or Deion Kane too. Like the Deion Kane hype has been growing, and he hasn't really done anything to justify that hype yet. Um, but I wouldn't say it's reverse. Yeah, a sleeper. I mean, sure, he's a sleeper, but when you have a sleeper top five in your rankings, that's not a sleeper. I mean, we like, can say the same thing about Der- Derwin James, though. Derwin James doesn't have that much production. He's been hurt. Yeah, he does. I mean, he had all the marks he needed in terms of solo tackle, interception, and pass flush market share. You know, I mean, sure, he got injured, 
but the year before that, he hit pretty much on the marquee in terms of decent uh, play. I just think that when you have a wide receiver who only has 126 yards and you're putting him over guys who have been actual starters and had like 1,000 yards in the season, actually are good players, I just don't get it is what I'm trying to say. Like a sleeper is a sleeper, but that's something you put on your sleeper list. You don't put them in your top five rankings, you know. You don't put a sleeper in your top five ranking. That just seems kind of crazy. So, let's see. Okay, last position for this week, at least. Tight ends. This, you told me that the college stuff doesn't always match up. What about high school? How does that align with, you know, the wants, needs, and aspirations of, you know, people who run the thing? Oh, you mean tight ends? and wire? Well, I haven't gotten into high school data for skill position players yet, but that is something I'm going to be diving into. Because after I did the quarterback stuff, it was just logical to go to other positions. But I haven't done that yet because I haven't had time to do it yet. But this offseason, that's definitely on my to-do list, I guess, is to do skill position players. So this still sounds in many ways like a small, somewhat conventional, you know, sort of Midwestern to, to, to Plains area kind of place, and you could slap a different name, you know, on the welcome to thing, and some people wouldn't even notice what it sounds like. Would that be accurate to describe some of the places where you play if you stay in the Mountain West, Jim? Uh, I assume so. Okay. Got it. Got it, got it. Now, are there any other really fun, exciting, interesting, sexy new projects you're working on, Jen? Um, hmm. Not really. I mean, I've been just doing uh, 2018 previews of the class on Common Man Football YouTube channel. And uh, and like I said, after that, when I, when I get through all the previews, I'm really going to get into um, high school skill position data and, uh, and stuff like that. So that's probably my next project in terms of stuff. But right now it's just previewing guys for the 2018 class. Okay. Got it. Are you still with us, Isaiah? Yeah, I'm back. What are you up to, sir? Anything new, interesting, exciting we should know about? Uh, I've been just looking at some of these guys this year. I've been delving more into the quarterback and tight end position, I believe. Okay. I'm in the process of getting my watch list finalized for my all-emerging and all-underappreciated team. I'll fire off my nominations. Uh, yes, via Twitter, and they also show up on Nuts and Bolts Sports. And then I'll, by the time the summer is over, I will have finalized the actual members of the all-emerging and all-underappreciated team for the 2017 year and the 2018 draft class for the, you know, for the ones that are draft eligible. But the thing that I'm struck with, you know, especially when you have seen a lot of years and a lot of drafts, uh, one is that I mean yes there are there are some 
quote unquote bad drafts. And there was a few years, but not that many. But a handful of years were just there just weren't very, very, really good players to be had. You know, there's been a few years where you almost were just, you know, you know, you, you, if you if you got a couple of guys who went on to contribute at all, you felt like you did pretty well. But that's not most years. Most years, there's a good amount of quality players at almost every position. But, you know, probably a few notable exceptions each year, but usually. And the issue is figuring out how to one, recognize those players, right? And then two, once again, the training and development and all that good stuff. And I'm struck by how far football's come in some ways, but how far it has not come in others. And just to know that I have a friend, you know, I have a colleague, I have someone to whom, you know, I can turn who is in many ways, sometimes by himself, well ahead of what, not just you know, some, but several NFL franchises are lagging behind what Tim's doing, just in terms of whether or not a team even buys into this stuff, just knowing, just having a database, just having the information about, here's the players that made it, here's the players that didn't, and here's the things they have had in common. Even if I was going to not even follow the dictates of what comes from that process, I can't imagine why more teams don't endeavor to just know it. That's something that still strikes strikes me when I think about that. Like, there's, I don't know, probably the vast majority of the teams out there, though everyone's trying, at least to some extent, to do metrics now. As Jim has pointed out, uh, it's easier to do wrong than it is to do right. But I'm just shocked. Absolutely. I mean... Because the main, the main criticism I get about, well, not the main one, but the one that struck me most was mm-hmm. people saying, well, if you're right, then every GM in America should already know this and do this. But really? if that's true, then guys like Dalvin Tomlinson wouldn't be drafted and guys like Deion Jordan wouldn't be drafted and as high as he was drafted. You know, like, if NFL teams really were doing what I was doing, there would be less mess-ups, you know? Yes. Like, it's it's just that simple. So as much as people want to say, and again, it's mostly a pill authority argument. It's, well, the NFL knows what they're doing. Well, not no, not really, but sure. But at the same time, I just feel like, yeah, if, if NFL teams were doing data the way that they should be doing data, they should be missing on a heck of a lot less players. And right. it's just a matter of either it's a thing of where they know the data, but they don't believe in the data, which is probably one aspect of it. If they have people who do data, but they it's flawed in the way that they do it, that's another sort of thing that could happen as well, on top of just not having a very big sample size. You have teams that fire everybody. As you, you know, every coaching staff gets fired, they fire everybody, and then they start over again, and then they get people to go, hey, you're the data people, so go do data. And how big is their sample size you know, for their data? Are they going back 10 years? Are they going back 20 years? Are they going back 50 years? Who knows, you know? And are you looking at all the variables? Because the the number one thing I can tell you about data is when you do it long enough, you realize that it's about going, oh, this is the thing. And then the year, and next year you go, oh, no, this is the thing. And then the next year, oh, no, this is the thing. Like, it's a process of figuring out all the variables that affect NFL performance 
And if you're a new team who hasn't done this for a while, it's you're treading into, you know, precarious waters, I guess. Like if you base all your evaluations on athleticism data, there's a very good chance you could end up failing just as if you base all your stuff just on production data or any other data. But it's all those things together that really start to make stuff come together, I guess. And that's the one thing I think teams are lagging behind is they're definitely dabbling in athletic data and dabbling in other sort of data, but they're not combining. It's, it's a lot like, and I don't want to make the, but it's a lot like you have a bunch of uh, agencies or you have a bunch of intelligence people who are looking at this and looking at that, but they're not working together, you know, for the common goal. And because of that, teams are just stuck where they are, you know, in their old ways, because unless you have a system that just pops out one number, you know, that's accurate all the time, they're just not going to buy into it, you know, unfortunately. And that may be what it is too, is that, you know, if you do enough data, you realize you can't just take this data and turn it into one number and be good. That's just not how it works. But I guess most NFL teams just want to do that. They just want to simplify it. And like we talked about it, when you try to simplify complex things, that stuff happens. So that's, that's the only issue I think when it comes to data in the NFL is they definitely do it, but they just don't do it very well, you know, because they try to simplify it too much or they just are new. They're so new to it that they just don't really know what they're doing yet. So, you know, but it's like the Browns. I definitely see what the Browns are doing, but I definitely think there's a lot of missteps. And the thing is, can you keep your job long enough through the missteps that you can overcome those mistakes? And that's the biggest issue I think data has in terms of a hurdle at the next level. Excellent. Very well put. Isaiah, thank you very much for your time, your talents, your attention. I look forward to seeing what you do next. Tim, as always, you always have great nuggets. You know, the things that you have put out there. I'm just shocked, like I said, that more people, you know, citizens, civilians, whatever, haven't bought into it. And someday, some team, you know, whether or not they actually bring you on is going to realize they need someone like you. And, you know, if you're going to get someone like you, why not get you? But whatever. Um, to give them that historical understanding that and that clarity about what players have made it and which ones haven't, and how to track the things, not just information, but to find which of the variables actually tended to matter, which things were predictive. So, yes, uh, once again, both of you gentlemen, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Also, as you move towards Memorial Day weekend, I hope you have a time to spend that with your families, remembering those that did give that last full measure of themselves to help secure our freedom. Uh, This is a special, very special time. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, and have a great evening.